0: Hey, how's it going? How you doing, man? I'm all right.
1: Brandon, what's going on, Brandon? What's up, guys? How are you? Oh, I'm great, man. Nice. Yeah, it's. I don't know. It's. It's been a while. Things have been hectic. Things have been good. How you doing? Good. Good. Yeah, it's a good. Uh, good
0: change from the last two times we spoke. I was, you know, going over past episodes, obviously. But the last two times I asked you when you came on, I was like, how's it going? Your answer was bad both times because you either had COVID
1: or I think it was COVID both times, actually. But yeah, good to hear that you're doing good. Yeah. Now, I don't have COVID, but everyone else that I know has COVID. Dude, it's ridiculous, right? Well, I am i don't really pay attention to a lot of the like national or international aspects of it, but I pay attention to the local numbers very closely. Yeah. And I remember when everyone freaked out because it was like 300 cases a day, and we we're like, we have to do something, blah, blah. And now everyone's business as usual when we're getting like four and 5,000 cases a day in my county. Yeah. So, you know, that that rules like 14000 cases in a week. No big
0: deal. Go to work. It really is insane. Just the lack of response
2: locally, federally, all over.
0: It's
1: like, oh, you you got COVID. Well, if you can find the time, take the afternoon off.
2: (laughs) Maybe if you have the PTO. I said if you can find the time. Well, hey, Zach, it actually I was just looking at
3: this. The new law in Colorado is uh, they have to give you, I think, up to 80 hours of PTO for being sick with covid no matter what your job is or whatever in colorado at least really yeah well then
1: colorado gives more of a fuck than the cdc yeah right (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly
2: yeah last i was hearing they were like well uh if you don't have symptoms even if you're positive just come on in it's fine right so that's yeah that's good news i guess that's what they're continuing to do I mean, it seems like both
0: administrations, the plan is internally to just get everyone infected and let the numbers of deaths be what they are. And the Trump administration, I think, was a little more outspoken about that. But then it was like sort of towards the end of his administration that it was revealed, like the internal documents said that that exactly was the plan. Like whatever they were saying outwardly, whatever they were releasing to the press or whatever, that was the plan was just herd immunity. And that um, everything else was just like half measures kind of intentionally. And then I think that it seems like the Biden administration is just on track to do the exact same thing. And then this Omicron variant where they say it's less severe and kind of use that as, as an excuse to say, look, let's just fucking deal with it. Like, let's let everybody get it, get to herd immunity and sacrifice whoever we are, because that's going to be fewer people. And of course, it's just a, a very ableist thing. And I, and I just saw this morning the, the new video recording of just like a Biden medical staffer on his team of some kind. Who is just saying on CNBC or CNN or whatever outlet she's on, she's doing one of the panel interviews. And, and she's saying, like, you know, it's great that the people who are dying now, like 75% or more, are people who have four comorbidities or more. So these are people who were just not well to begin with, which is just like outright eugenics. You're just saying eugenics on TV in front of everybody, and that's the policy of the U.S. at this
1: point. So that's where we're at, you guys. Cool. Fun stuff. Also, the, the, the herd immunity thing would be more, in, like, the interesting thing about that to me is just that that's clearly not a thing. Like, I have several friends who are on their second, third, or, or I think somebody I know is on their fourth round of COVID. Yeah. So explain to me, like, what immunity they have fucking developed, because you don't get the fucking flu that often, like, since that's... <laughs> oh, I was also reading about how now, like, because everybody's just back in the war like, remember, the flu really didn't hit hard last season because everybody was taking COVID precautions. Now nobody gives a fuck about anything anymore. So people are catching COVID and the flu simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but even beyond that, like, you know, uh, okay, I I do understand that there are a lot of illnesses that if you have multiple comorbidities are going to be an issue. There are not like the other thing is that like uh, in Pennsylvania, the hospitals are pretty much full, like FEMA is having to send in emergency response teams to Pennsylvania because we have fucked up so hard. We have just shit the bed so badly like there it actually is warranting a federal response, but like I keep reading about more and more people dying of really treatable ordinary things. Like our dude, I I was reading the story 2 days ago where a woman took her fucking kid to the hospital cuz he was having abdominal pains and it took them so long to treat him that his appendix burst in the waiting room. So it went from like a really simple like, you know, not simple in the realm of surgery procedure to a big fucking deal because there simply weren't any medical resources available for this kid. That's ridiculous.
4: Yeah. I almost wonder what the real death toll for COVID is going to be once they actually do figure out like all the people who died of treatable things in the hospital waiting. I'm sure it's going to be double whatever they think it is now.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, even like last year when, uh, when New York was getting like absolutely devastated by its first wave, I knew a lot of people like at my old job and shit who were just like, oh, they're like, they're overstating the numbers, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, there, there's another metric to measure that isn't this person tested positive for COVID and died. It's at a like at a commensurate time like the previous year the or the previous years, the average amount of people that died was X. And this year, the average amount of people that die is Y. And when that's consistently hundreds of people more, something is killing these people. Right. Now we're going to get the government on figuring out what that thing is. But until we figure that uh, out, you know, isolation
0: because of lockdowns that America totally did. That's why the cure is worse than the disease, like Trump said. (laughs) They're dying
1: from a broken heart. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Which is,
3: you know, just an interesting way of phrasing like heart disease. Dying from lack of freedom in Biden's communist America. (laughs) <laughs> Did we give up on uh getting Zach
0: uh your camera to work? I thought we had gotten that to work in the past.
2: It worked like one time and then it hasn't ever worked since. So I don't know. I've clicked all the buttons and, and none of them fix it. So
4: yeah, it doesn't always work for me. I got mine, but it changes every time. <laughs> it's just yeah, Connor
0: Connor's like <laughs> uncharacteristically bright today in his room. It's like... Yeah,
4: I know. So it's three o'clock here, so it's not pitch black yet. And it is staying brighter for longer a little bit now. So nice. You know, it's uh, yeah, this is what it looks like when there's, you know, sun out. This is the first time I think I've ever realized what you look like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seems like it really wasn't. But I mean, it's I look outside. I'm like, oh, OK, it's better than it was for sure. Yeah. So I guess it makes a difference pretty quick needing some serious uh,
1: uh, longer days because I'm hoping that we can finish recording by like 8 so that I can finish working on the project outside that I started. Because my choice is doing it in the dark and in the rain or doing it when it's 30 degrees colder and also in the dark. Oh That's a tough choice. <laughs> <laughs> 45 degrees and raining is better than 15 degrees and
3: not raining. Fair enough. You're making me look like a real lazy asshole because all I have to do is like walk downstairs into the garage to work on my project. Pretty
1: nice. I mean, I'm just parked out in front of the house, but yeah. like, I don't know. I didn't feel like driving over to my shop to do stuff. So I was just doing it at home and whatever. I'm not I'm trying to make anybody look like a lazy asshole. I've talked to Connor. I've been manic as fuck for like a week and a half. Like, there was one night I came home from the bar at 1 30 in the morning and decided that was a good time to clean off my front porch, which has just been littered with car parts for two years. I was finished by three.
4: Okay. So you actually finished. That's bait. Hey, that's awesome. Good project. finished
1: in the sense that there are now boxes of car parts that need carried over to the shop but like there's no trash on the porch and the the parts are boxed up and ready to move
4: there you go sounds good to me i've been getting so much shit done (laughs) good i mean sometimes you need that you need that like motivation to get it done that's there's some positive uh benefits here as opposed to negative benefits
1: oh i've been fixing stuff in the house dumb little shit like Oh man, I like, so I almost forgot the effect that like depression has on your life where you just like have no motivation to do like anything. I'm just like, no, I'm just a lazy person. Like, yes, I'm depressed, but also I'm lazy. Now I'm just like, oh, now I feel really weird when I sit down for three minutes.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I was going to say maybe it's the the whole like shorter days or whatever, but I've been kind of depressed lately and maybe that's why I've been getting nothing done. So
4: yeah, it's that time of the year, like after the holidays, I feel like you just kind of gotta you decompress a little bit. Slump it up. Yeah. Yep. Oh, a thing that I have figured out that
1: my biggest trigger that will send me into manic episodes is like stress and anxiety. And I spent a week at change with my mom. And when I came home, lunacy.
4: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that'll do it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Every time I like would stay with my parents for any length of time after I moved out at like 20. I was like, yeah, I remember why I fucking left like this is this is not like because you get along so well with your parents when you're not there because you become like friends You're just like texting like you're like like you will literally have a drink with your parents and like talk like you're adults that are friends. And it's like, wow, this is like a whole different person that I get along with now. And then I don't know, like a a week vacation. (laughs) It's like, yeah, I remember why I fucking left. Bye.
1: (laughs) Yeah, me and my mom did not vibe at all until I was like in my mid 30s. But then some at some point we clicked and now it's, it's less that like she gets a little bit too much like my mom. It's more mm. just that like everything about her life drives me insane. Like yeah. uh, a good example is like if I'm just sitting at her house reading, she sees me reading and assumes I'm bored. So she starts talking to me. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So if I am bored and I do a thing to remedy it, it gets just comes to a screeching halt. And then my mom has, like, really inane conversation with me. It's, it, like, I, I saw a joke like this on Rick and Morty one time where it's just like, oh, what are you doing, reading a book? And it's like, what the fuck do you want me to say to that?
4: <laughs> yes. Yeah. I know. No, I'm just looking That's at it. It's a great scene. <laughs> so, what are,
1: you, what are you doing, reading a book?
4: <laughs> yes. Nowhere to take that conversation. Oh, where are you going, The kitchen? Yeah, see, doesn't feel so good. <laughs> yeah.
0: My dad's favorite response to my very stupid question as a kid which was what are you doing when it was very obvious what he was doing whether it was like laying tile in the kitchen or folding laundry like it's very obvious what you are doing but i would still as a nine-year-old be like what are you doing and he he would just always respond planting corn
1: then it made me realize
0: (laughs) how stupid of a question i had just asked but i still would do it the next day like
1: my mom is 65 years old and will see me making a sandwich and say what are you doing yeah hell you're planting corn and I I don't consistently say the same thing, but I always just be like, oh, rebuilding an engine. Yeah. I'm, doing, doing, I'm cleaning the house. She does not pick up on these cues. Did you? Uh, yeah, you
0: want to get into uh, car updates then? Because I actually have a car update myself. If you guys would like to oh, hear. Oh wow,
4: it. that's
3: great. Oh. All right. Yeah, let's oh, do yeah. It. Before I forget though, I I do what I did want to ask you guys uh, from Cars and Comrades. I I finished editing the um the the first bikes episode the other day and i was wondering there's a couple things i was gonna cut maybe i should have had this conversation on but whatever uh the uh the part where i was a little bit racist towards germans i don't know if i should cut that out no that's Um, acceptable okay (laughs) and then the part where i i'll weigh in on that dude where my my add uh took over and i got distracted by uh zach's letter opener
2: uh, yeah that doesn't need to be in there i don't think but okay i might yeah, cut I feel that like that's out. more okay
1: to take out than racism against germans
2: <laughs> i mean <laughs> there's not even a race
1: We're just it's a nationality that
3: you know did some stuff yeah fuck those crowds
2: <laughs> okay <laughs> i'll
3: uh yeah that sounds good all right well then uh oh connor That link that you have on the Slack for the notes, it's not working for me. It's saying access denied or something.
4: Yeah, I had a feeling that might happen.
1: Is this more anti-German propaganda, access denied?
0: (laughs) You guys should all have access to (laughs) a bunch of those other channels in the podcast tab on the left if you guys want to share any stuff in there. That is
4: a possibility. Let's see if I can
0: figure that out. Let me give you guys uh, my car update in the meantime. I think the last thing I told you guys about my Toyota was that I just could not get it to start. And I had my father and law like smacking on the gas tank with a hammer, and that was sort of getting it to start. We were spraying starter fluid into the, like the starter and all this shit, and none of it was working. And so I would love to tell you that I just put the spare key in it and it started right up, uh, and that I didn't take it to a mechanic who then called me. And asked me if I had a spare key and then charged me $65 to tell me that the spare key was actually the thing that it needed. But that's actually the, the latter is what happened, is that I took it to a fucking mechanic because I was totally out of my mind. I had no idea what to what to even begin to try to get this thing to start. Had it towed there. Uh, luckily, my wife has AAA, so it was like not a, that didn't cost anything. But then he looks at it for like a day, calls me, and is like, do you have like a, a spare key? And I'm like, I, 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 yeah, I'll bring it in. And uh, tried that, immediately started up, and then I just drove it home. So huh. and that cost me so was it the,
3: the old one, like, worn out or something? Is that what happened? Like,
0: it's it's like one of those uh, Toyotas, I mean, depending on what year, it's like, it's a key fob with a key mixed in one. So it's just got, like, that mm. big housing on the key that has, like, the four buttons on it. And so mine had broken, and it had been broken for, like, months. And it basically, I would just snap, snap it back together and then if when you twisted the key to turn on the car on or off, if you did that too hard, it would just break again. Then you have to put it back together. And so I bought a new one online, like on Amazon or something. And the way that that works is that you it gives you like a whole thing, and the key that is fastened in there is blank, and you have to get that carved. So I bring that to like the Home Depot, any place where they carve keys, and they're like, no, we can't touch that. We have no idea what to fucking do with that. I'm like, all right, well then I will just take, um the key part out of my old one and put it in this new housing and then the electronic part that has that has been opening up my car all the time. Yep. And then I will uh, just seal that all together and then that should turn on my car. Now it doesn't turn on my car, even though like all the electronic parts are there. And then even if I have... like I, I don't know if there's some kind of microchip that I'm missing. I don't know what it is, but it's like I have it all there. Yep. Like, Where's where this microchip? You want to tell yep. me?
4: It is... The key is programmed to the car. Yep. So you can't fuck around with that shit.
1: Guess who doesn't have these problems? (laughs) I'm still using the same key is the thing. Like, I have the same
4: Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yep. It is communicating something with your computer. And so, from your computer's perspective, someone's trying to steal your fucking car. They're like, whoa. Hey, this key doesn't have the password. Because keys have passwords now. The key to my heart does not have a password.
0: <laughs> I feel like I may not be explaining it properly, or or there's some really mysterious part that I'm missing. But it's like,
4: nope, nope. This is a common this is a common thing. People get new keys all the time. You have to take it to a dealer for them to program the key. And if you don't fucking do that, you are fucked. It will not work. It is true of Toyota. Are we
1: talking about like the new ones that have like the chip key that that little like doodad that's in the like? Yeah, I
4: mean, there's all sorts of different versions of it, but the the truth is keys anything, pretty much anything after 2010, which is just the cutoff in my head because that's to me a brand new car. So anything newer than 2010, you got fucking keys like that and you got to go to the dealer to fuck around with them. Even I think even mine to some extent has some fuckery with it and it's a 2003. Um, I, I don't know what all the fuckery is, but like there's some shit like I can't just get the same it, i don't know there's all kinds of shit you got to program with these things but when you disconnected those electronics from that key that's what happens so it's probably a lot like you can reset the computer in your car by unplugging your battery for i don't know 10 minutes 30 minutes whatever mm-hmm. it is you unhook the battery for a while it'll reset your computer not everything but big parts of it like you can erase um trouble codes sometimes mm-hmm. doing that so If you disconnected power from that fob for a while, then changed around keys and reassembled this and that, you lost whatever, you know, password or whatever was attached to it. It didn't know what was going on. I mean, you have to understand your key is now a computer.
3: Yeah, I mean, it probably has like a RFID chip in there or something. right? Yeah, it's something. Uh (laughs) I mean, it's it's also possible that just the key itself has worn out and it's not engaging all the the pins in the Tumblr or whatever it's called.
4: But yeah, Mike, know. this is seriously a very common issue. Like, this is not, like, I'm not even talking with you. <laughs> this is just part of newer cars. It's capitalism. I mean, yeah. really, you cannot fuck with those keys unless you go to a dealer. No, they make sure of that. I don't know how they do it exactly, but you best believe you can't do fucking shit unless you go to the dealer with those keys. Totally common. Yeah. happens to so many fucking people and they're all very confused when all of a sudden their car stops working
1: now's the part where I chime in and, and comment how t- for two years I removed the tumbler and just started my van with a screwdriver <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah I yeah. was gonna say I can pull the key out of my ranger while it's running and it just <laughs> continues running it's great <laughs>
3: yeah and and the only electronics in my uh MR2 are the radio and the fuel injection. Everything else is mechanical. So.
4: <laughs> yeah, new new keys, man. They're something else. I don't I'm so glad I don't have to fuck with it, but if I ever do get like that new uh Nissan Z car, oh, I'll be in for it.
3: You know, I I heard a story from uh a lemon's racer that um I think they did like an arrive and drive thing. They you know, flew out to a race and got a rental car and drove to the track. And then, you know, um, they were they were racing with a team that was local to the area. And um, I think it was a Nissan Altima or something uh, that they rented. And they had to go into the nearest town to like go to an auto parts store and get a replacement part for their their race car. And um, they had left the key fob on like a table next to the car where it was parked And with it that close, they were able to get in the car and start it and drive it away. But then when they parked at the parts store, it wouldn't start again because the key was, you know, 20 miles away or something. Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) I've always wondered about that. Yeah. Wow. Because my mom has one of those, like, remote start doodads. And I'm like, what happens if it, like, falls out of my pocket, like, as I'm shutting the door? (laughs) Yeah. It's fucking great. Hard pass on all of that
0: shit. Innovation. I grabbed my key, but there's nothing interesting about it. I was gonna like hold it up to you guys, but like I don't know if it actually would even explain anything. But like, here's like the fob. You can see the gorilla glue hanging out of it where I attached the original key. It's just like all I changed in it was this plastic housing part. So I don't know. Maybe that's the problem. I'll get the. I'll get the. I think that's what it is. I think I actually changed this plastic part. So maybe there's something in this that I'm missing, and I got to use the original.
4: Doesn't work. I'll Go to the I'll dealer. I don't know. I'll try it out. I, I pro- but it's not. They might sell you a new one, but. No, they, they. I mean, even the the place where I took it,
0: they said they, they have a guy who comes around every couple of days and he will replace keys and he yep. charges like $150 to do a new key, which is like, I think 100 bucks less than the dealership would charge, but he's able to match it up somehow. But it's like, why would I do that if I have like this key that just so,
4: works right like, there? You, you're like, questioning like, like capitalism. Stuff. You're like, well, wait, why would I do this? Because money. What do you mean? That's why they want to make money off of you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: Isn't that a price to pay for the convenience of having the good key? Don't you want the good key? It's gooder than your key. You need it. Oh, just the key that like unlocks my car and open and starts
0: it. You know, I mean, the key, the, the key that does what the fucking key is supposed to do. I have to pay one hundred fifty dollars for that, key <laughs> as opposed to having two different keys. Yeah,
2: there. no, that's but, somehow better.
0: I still want a fucking crate jeep. Ever since when I was 19 and I was, like, working as a garage door installer, I heard about these crate jeeps that you could buy leftover from Vietnam for, like, $200 from, like, the back of uh, an old, like, army surplus magazine or something. And they would ship it to you, and you could just, like, put it together like you were in the field and then drive that thing around. I'm like, I have to find this. Jeep. Before the internet was really even that big. Like, it was just gonna. Yeah, you cannot get these. Like, this is not a real thing that you can get for anybody. Like, sorry to disappoint you right out of the gate, but, like, I looked into it, and, like, the only way you can get one of those is at, like, a an auction of army surplus things, and then because it's considered, like, a weapon, I guess, they cut it into fours with, like, a laser cutter, basically, like, diagonal. They just cut a big X in the entire thing. So you can have it as, like, a relic, but you cannot actually have, like, a, a fucking leftover Vietnam crate jeep as much as you may like. Now, whether you can buy one, like, Because you can also buy a Hummer for like $5,000. Like, those exist. You can get like a fucking H1 Hummer for not that much money from like the Army surplus things. So maybe you can get one that's already put together if it gets released in the proper way, but like you can't just get like a
1: fucking crate one as much as I would have liked. But I would rather drive that, rather than this Toyota with the key bullshit. I've never heard any like whatever urban legends about like buying a flat pack Jeep like still in the packaging, but I've seen like videos of them putting them together in the field. (laughs) They're really fucking cool. Hmm. Like, it's like a team of eight people throw
3: one together in like an hour.
4: That's pretty great. Yeah,
3: (laughs) I want to say they talked about this on uh, Car Talk like, you know, 10, 20 years ago whenever I was listening to them. And they were basically saying, yeah, I mean, that did exist once upon a time, but like, basically they were all sold by, you know, whatever, the 60s or something.
1: America might love excess, especially in the Vietnam War era, but like they didn't exactly make a lifetime supply of flat pack Jeeps for whoever wanted one. <laughs> right, right. Yeah.
3: <laughs> it's kind of like a couple of years ago, there was, um, when all those, like, bird scooters started showing up on sidewalks, um, a bunch of, like, local cities, uh, government would be like, this is just illegally parked, we're gonna impound it and auction <laughs> nice. them off. And they would auction them for, like, 20 40 bucks or whatever. And then you could go on, you know, eBay or whatever and get the um, the replacement part that turns it from, you know, the scan your car GPS locked everything scooter to just a regular scooter that you can drive and people would get like basically free, um, you know, bird scooters that they could zip around with. Um, but yeah, no, those they they figured out the legislation or, you know, the right people got bribed so that. They uh, right. they don't get impounded anymore. I mean, you can still steal one off the sidewalk <laughs> and do the same thing, but not legally. <laughs> not legally, advice. <laughs> Brian, speaking of things that are ubiquitous but still hard to get, I did
0: want to get like well, since you posted the what was what was that bicycle, the flying pigeon. You said they made like a half a billion of in China, oh, and I was yeah. like, "Oh, then it should be easy to get one. They should be like cheap yeah. and just everywhere, right?" No, 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 no. <laughs> as cool <laughs> as they look, and as reliable as they would probably be, if you could find one, it's still like five, six hundred dollars if you want to get one.
3: Yeah, that's basically what I found too. Yeah, like you can, um, you can get them from Alibaba for like forty bucks each if oh, you order okay. like a thousand of them. So I don't know that th- this this will probably come up in the bicycles part two episode, but. I kind of want to like start a side hustle, like buying Mm. these online and selling them. Like, just need to get like a storage unit to put them all in, and hire a couple people to assemble them, and you know, flip them for a couple hundred bucks. Do you think you could get a return fairly quickly on that? I don't like. I was talking to my friend about this, and he's like, "Yeah, but you can also just go to Walmart and buy a bike for a hundred bucks." Like, what makes this 1950s technology Chinese bike? Better than this, you know, 1990s technology, you know, Chinese bicycle. Like, it's, it's, What uh where's the market right, right. for it, you know, for getting a single speed steel frame bike with shitty brakes, you know? <laughs> I mean, how big
0: is the hipster, like, what do they call them, like the fixies, like the fixed gear bikes that, that they do one speed or whatever? Because I know that that was a thing that people would make fun of was like hipsters who drive one speed bikes. And how big is the community of people who want that, but then also are aficionados of China? You know what I mean? Because China's also not super popular in America right right now. So that might be- The Chinese bikes are single speed, not fixed gear. Yeah,
3: so they still have a free wheel. I I have no idea what I'm talking about. I mean, you could squirt some super glue in there and make it a fixed gear, but I don't know if people would want that. I I didn't even know the difference between those two. So my apologies
0: to all the bike people.
1: Uh, On a fixed gear, you can't coast. The pedals are turning whenever the wheel's turning on a- uh, freewheel, you can coast that sounds stupid why would you want a fixed gear at all then <laughs> did i just figure out why they were making fun of hipsters like... <laughs> cuz they're more fun to ride i really like riding fixed gear
0: it, like what's uh, what's desirable about the pedals going all the time though as opposed to being able
1: to coast i mean personal preference i guess really at the end of the day i feel like it's a little bit easier to maintain momentum in certain scenarios it's like aesthetically it's a lot cuz the bike has a very clean look cuz there's like no gears no nothing on the handlebars no it's smart to run a front brake but you don't even have to you can balance on them without putting your feet down so if you're in like toe cages or clips uh, and you come to a red light you can balance the bike really easily without taking your feet off yeah i mean like it's not inherently better but as a personal preference like they're really fun to ride you know now that you mention it i realized my first bicycle was a
0: panasonic of all brands fixed gear. I couldn't coast. Like you said, like I I had to always be pedaling and I didn't realize it until you said that, but that was my first bicycle. And like,
2: yeah, I rode the thing a lot. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, Brandon just likes old technology. That's worse for the aesthetics of it. That's why he has carburetors
1: on everything. Oh friend, wait until we get to my update for today. Oh my God.
2: If you put fuel injection on something, I'm going to, Eat a shoe. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I didn't move forward. I moved <laughs> backwards okay. oh, no. <laughs> Did you put a, a hand crank start on a motor or something? We'll get there, buddy. Okay. All right. All right. I won't uh I won't spoil anything.
4: Cool. Yep. All right. So Zach, you uh you are up. Right on. I got a lot to talk about. I um I'm
2: not a big Christmas person in general, but uh people like to give gifts and stuff. So I was just like, hey, if you're gonna get me anything, I need car parts. So get me some gift cards to Grim Speed, which uh, if you're not in like the Subaru scene, uh, yeah, they're a big, big Subaru aftermarket uh, supplier. So everybody that got me anything just got me gift cards for there. So I was able to buy some nice new parts. I got a, uh, well, I had an AEM cold air intake that I bought quite a while ago. And I was going to get a tune for that because you obviously have to tune your car if you if it's turbocharged and you put a cold air intake on it, it's going to change some things, so you got to get a tune. And I talked to the guy and I was like, yo, I might be getting a downpipe eventually. Are you going to charge me more or less or the same if I get a tune with a downpipe as well? And he's like, nah, it'll be the same for you know both or just one, so you might want to wait. Cool. So I had the cold air intake, bought a downpipe, bought a boost control solenoid and a new turbo heat shield just a few little goodies for the Subaru. And I got all those installed last week. And I've just been doing some street tuning for that uh, for the past few days, which is fun and terrifying because you have to do third gear pulls on the road all the way out to red Line. Yeah, And uh, yeah, it's, there's other people on the road. <laughs>
4: it's, it's iffy. Um, I, I, I remember when I was doing them, I was doing them at like this area where there's like the Cook County Forest Preserves. Uh, and there's a Ooh. few like they're 50 mile per hour roads or whatever. So I was like, well, so I'm going to go where I can avoid the police the best. And it was like, but it's a wooded area. So it was a little bit sketchy. Oh, yeah. And third gear pulls get you up to, you know, pretty close to 100. So,
2: <laughs> Oh, yeah. I uh, I was trying to look at the speedometer when I was doing one. And I, there was no way I was doing that. My <laughs> eyes were stuck on the road and my <laughs> hands were glued to the wheel because, uh, yeah, I, I've been doing it just kind of in. Right after work, like, (laughs) this is the best time I could do it. So I could get a log sent to my tuner and he could get me something sent back. So it's like 430 in the afternoon. And the only place near me that's even remotely open is like a, a highway on ramp. So I have to just commit to where I'm going really slow behind a car on the on-ramp to give them some space. And then there's somebody behind me like this fucking asshole going 20 on the (laughs) on-ramp. Yep. And they just (laughs) hang down at the back of another car and hope that I get to red line before I meet them (laughs) during rush hour. So it's not like I can bounce out a lane or whatever because there's cars in those lanes too. So yeah, it's been a really good time doing that. It's not terrifying at all. But yeah, it's going pretty well so far. Starting to move up to higher boost tunes and things like that. So it's just getting scarier and scarier. But hey, the time between 2500 RPM and Redline is getting shorter and shorter. So technically, I think that makes it safer.
4: Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Nice. Yeah, that's been fun.
3: I was doing that same thing last year or the year before. Yeah, about two years ago. The only thing is, I get off work at 1 a.m., so there's no one in front of me, so it was a lot easier. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if you have the same five speed as and gear ratio as mine, but mine would get up to about 90 at redline, uh, yeah.
2: in third gear. So, <laughs> yep, yeah, I think that's what I figured. I um, I looked pretty quickly after letting off one time, and I was just under 90. Uh, so I figured I was like 90, maybe 92, um, which doesn't sound insanely fast overall, but uh, it's pretty fast on the street and especially around other cars.
4: Yeah, when you're doing a pull, yeah. it's, it's quick because you're starting at a low speed and then you're you get up there pretty quick. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Also, just in general, if you're doing 90 at like 2500 RPMs versus 90 at like six grand. Oh, oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. The butt doubt is off the charts. (laughs) It feels terrifying. Uh, But yeah, no, I've been doing that. It's been pretty fun. Uh, I didn't ask for like a crackle pop tune, any of that dumb shit, but I have uh, blown some flames out the back end a little unintentionally a couple times. times. So that was cool.
4: I did get, so I did at first, I didn't get the crackle tune, but then I had to go back and forth to the tuner and whatever. And I was like, I only have five maps and one of them is they're like, well, you, we're not gonna charge you we can add it i was like all right fucking add it whatever add it you know i don't have anything else to you know it's like the performance tune the crackle tune and then there's like a valet mode or some shit and i was like all right well whatever they're like doesn't cost you anything i was like okay all right i want some flames give me give me that give me the pops and and flames and shit
2: i mean if you have the option for it it's you know it's nice i would you know not run it every single day because that's like I mean, kind of a dick move, but <laughs> hey, if you're like at a show or whatever, and you just want to blow some flames, fuck yeah, it's tight. Is that bad for your car to do that?
4: Terrible. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> not, great. No, it's <laughs> not great. It's not great. Really- <laughs> <laughs> I
0: didn't
2: get the impression that it was like. I would say on a naturally aspirated car, it's not all that bad. Uh, really, you're just kind of harming the exhaust system, like towards yeah, the end of it. But maybe, uh, yeah, maybe the cat. Well, uh, but on a turbocharged car, it's you're really killing the life of that turbocharger. It's not going (laughs) to be having a good time. (laughs) Yeah. So Zach, how many, uh, what kind of boost are you running? Uh, I haven't gotten to a max boost pull yet. We're just like slowly, you know, going through and I'm just doing pulls, you know, when I can. So it's been a week or so of going back and forth. And you know, it's e-tuning. So he sometimes takes a day or two to get back to me. But right now I'm like, maybe three or four data logs into the, like the big third gear pulls. And I think my peak is right under 14 PSI. So okay. I'm hoping to get probably, I think where I could get to safely would be like 17 and a half, maybe 18 PSI yeah. on a stock turbo stock internals. What are the, what, yeah. are, what is the
4: stock boost again?
2: Thirteen five. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I've got yeah. I've got about
3: seventeen myself, and that's about when the stock injectors max out. Yeah. So um, I might we'll talk later. I might need to get the name of your tuner because I I might be doing some mods to mine, like bigger fuel injectors in the future. So yeah, he's we'll been
2: he's been pretty good so far. Uh, decent price and he's fairly responsive. Um, I've been messaging him at weird times and stuff, so I think that makes it a little more difficult. Uh, but yeah, uh, we'll talk
4: about it. Cool. Yeah. Welcome to Cars and Comrades, where we talk about, oh yeah, I'll talk to you after the show about the, the tuner, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this just, it's not a podcast, just imagine you walked in on a few car guys having a conversation about something, and one of them just really, really wants to talk about a specific subject that we'll eventually get around to talking about.
4: Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I've long
1: abandoned the concept that we care about our listeners, that we're just, like, recording a conversation we're
2: having. Yeah, pretty much. We do this for ourselves, not you. <laughs> I fully totally believe not.
4: It feels like it. Sometimes we have information. Sometimes. So Zach, is that uh, does that pretty much wrap you up there? I think so.
2: Yeah. I need to work on my truck, but I'm fucking lazy and I have. It, so no updates there.
4: <laughs> well, on that note, uh I will go. Um I've accomplished pretty much Nothing. I can't remember where I was the last time we recorded, but I haven't done shit. My car runs shitty because there's something wrong with it. We don't know what. Still, so I bought a new uh, mass airflow sensor, and I just have not put it on yet because I'm lazy. Have it, haven't put it on yet, but it's gonna have, probably have to go back to the shop next weekend anyway. So still runs shitty. It's got a misfire, but you know, gets me to work. <laughs> All that counts. And then uh, I don't want to talk about the Camaro. So (laughs) I'm just going to say (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that is so that is officially very back burner status. Luckily, the shop that it's at, you know, I'm friends with the guy. So it's he's not bugging me to get moving on it until we figure out the 350. Um, I'm not going to worry too much about the Camaro. It's a pain in my ass. And I'd really rather not find out what's wrong until I have more money. So that's all I got. (laughs) I've been lazy and I haven't done much. Oh, that one was easy.
3: See? Um, So I think that uh, it's my turn then, right?
4: Yes, yeah. Okay,
3: yeah, okay. Let's see. I haven't done a whole lot since we last talked. I forget exactly where we were, where I was uh, previously, but uh, as it stands now, I have the engine and transmission and everything bolted into the car with the mounts on there, and basically I just have to hook up everything else. Um, Last time... I was working on it. I uh, took out some of the rear suspension to get the axles put into the transmission on one side and the hubs on the other. And uh, not only could I not get it in there, in the transmission, because of what I was talking about previous, those little weird circlip is being stubborn, but now I can't get the rear suspension back together. So uh, I got frustrated and rage quit on that uh, last weekend. And But in the meantime, I did get new uh, shifter cables. And some, like, bushings for the shifter on the inside in the cabin. So I'm going to install that. And while I was in there, like, taking apart the rear suspension, I saw that the stock bushings are just totally shot. Yup. Kind of like that meme, Connor, that you posted of uh, Prince <laughs> Philip. <laughs> that That's what my bushings look like. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to replace those with poly bushings. I've got Rafi and James, their... They're, uh, race car they accidentally bought two sets of poly bushings for it so i'm gonna buy one set off of them and put that in eventually but i'll probably get it on the road just so i can move it out of the way and work on my sabaru in the meantime and so like
1: what regular bushings only have one partner but then poly (laughs) poly bushings are part of like a whole polycule (laughs) yeah
3: yeah Yeah. you you really don't want to like look in the in the box while they're sitting there you want to like knock on on there to to let them know that you're opening it before you look inside yeah, but they are the polyurethane, so they're going to be hopefully a little bit more durable and less uh, crumbly than the stock rubber ones. Oh, no, I knew I knew what they were. I just wanted to make yeah, that. No, it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And then, you know, the, the Sabaru is leaking fuel, probably worse than it was getting terrible mileage. So uh, I really do need to fix that sooner rather than later. Oh, and something in the front end is going clunk when I go around corners. So I really need to just put it up in the air and see what's wrong. If I if I die because the wheel comes off at 90 miles an hour on the highway, you know, that's, you know, that's why.
4: There was a clunking and (laughs) you drove on it. Yep. I'm very familiar with the feeling.
3: So, yeah, fun stuff. Sweet. Uh, That's it. So, Brandon, what do you got? So you know really
1: upfront about my mental health issues on the show. Yeah. Good news everybody, I've taken a swing in the other direction and now I barely sleep and I have all of the energy in the world to accomplish everything. I've rearranged my house, started doing repairs, and so on New Year's Eve at around 4:30 in the afternoon as the sun was beginning to set, I decided it was a good idea to do the water pump on my van. Oh no. Oh no, those do bad parts to the story. Okay, in about 2 good. hours I had it 90% back together. Uh, Well, because my van had been leaking about a a gallon of coolant every two days. Yeah, I remember this, And I was just topping it off every time I went to work. So around like 7 o'clock, I realized that I was lacking about two pieces that I needed that I couldn't manage to salvage from the old water pump. And I was like, fuck it. I'll just walk over to the store tomorrow and and grab new ones and whatever. And then at like 10 o'clock, my friend's like, hey, I'm having like, Like, me and my girlfriend are just fucking hanging out for New Year's, and you should come over and, like, watch a movie with us. And so at 11 o'clock at night, I decided, fuck it, I can get the old water pump apart, and I did. And by 11.30, I (laughs) had it finished back together and was over at my friend's house (laughs) and then, you know, did New Year's Eve stuff and then came home at, like, 2 in the morning and, like, started rearranging furniture and cleaning stuff and (laughs) patching walls and things. And, yeah, so... That was just the one thing. The other thing. So lately I've been really considering like, cause my van gets fucking 12 miles to a gallon. Like it's very impractical in some respects, not in all mind you, cause I'm never going to like buy an accord and then like haul a motor with it or whatever. But
4: Oh, by the way, I've you can, able- you can, I know you think you can. I hold my own fucking transmission in my car. It's in the car right now. <laughs> it did scratch pieces of my dash. And it was not great for the seats, but it did fit my two seater car and it was, it got the job done.
1: The last time I did some shit like that, I had to haul a 455 with a turbo 400. Uh, The combination weighs at least like eight or 900
4: pounds. Yeah. Okay. Might be tough on a cord.
1: Uh, Maybe a cord wagon then.
4: There you go.
0: (laughs) Where there's a wheel and a tarp, there's a way. Yeah. tarp
4: would have been a good idea for me.
1: fold the tarp over at least like two or three times getting the thickness in there I've been entertaining the idea of buying something more modern and practical I got my head in the space of like what would I want because there's a couple of modern cars that I like but like they're expensive and they're Dodge and they're still not practical they just make like 800 horsepower yeah I would (laughs) I would like a Hellcat fuck it (laughs) I'm not gonna pay Hellcat money for anything but yeah it would be cool so I got thinking like fuck it like It's not cool or anything, but, like, I would just get a Prius because, like, they get, like, 50-something miles to a gallon. And, like, from everything I've heard, like, replacing the batteries is a headache, but it's not expensive like it once was and so on and so forth. So, anyway, I was on Instagram uh, cruising, and a friend of mine had something listed for sale, and so I bought it. It's a 1974 Econoline. Wait, what, buddy? (laughs) That's not a Prius. (laughs) No, no. See, what I did was I primed myself for buying something new. And then I found something I liked. Mm. I broke every one of my personal rules on this purchase boys. I got a Ford. It does not have a V8. Uh, This is a straight six, six cylinders of raw power. (laughs) Dude. It's, it's got everything. Manual brakes, manual steering, Three on the tree. Oh, it is great. I love it so much. Uh, I'm going to drive it everywhere. It's uh, it's a little bit of a nightmare to drive. But it is now the best condition thing that I own. It like needs one body panel either cleaned up or maybe patched. The interior is great. The motor is a fresh crate motor with less than 2,000 miles on it. I did break the exhaust driving home, but I almost had that fixed. And then I had to record a stupid podcast. That's why I've been laying in the rain all day. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Sorry, bro. Yeah, that's I, I saw pictures of this truck uh, or this van. I I like it. I thought it was great. It already
1: has side pipes. It's the most expensive thing I've ever bought besides my house. All right, I'm wow. gonna check
3: this out. Is it on Instagram or what?
1: Yeah, dude. Brandon, was this the one where you
0: said something about van butts? Yeah. <laughs>
1: okay.
3: The, that that, that one. green one's my
1: new one. I like it. I'm I'm gonna change a little bit eventually, but like it's perfect the way it is. I love this fucking thing. Three on the tree is such an insane nightmare to drive, especially with manual steering. I fucking love it. No, none of my friends want to drive it at all. It's rules.
4: <laughs> oh, That's great. I, I like, I do like that the story went from, Oh, I was actually considering buying a Prius and then I got another fan. <laughs> I needed
1: the story to be an accurate reflection of my
4: thought process. It's not, look, it is. So I do the same thing. I'm like, you know what? I'm finally going to buy a practical daily. I'm going to start really looking. And I have looked at Priuses too. I just don't like the interior setup that much. I'm like, nah, I don't know. But I have considered Priuses and other practical vehicles. The problem is when I start my search, I start looking for the higher trim levels. And I'm like, oh, wait, well, if there's a faster version, I'm going to get that. And then I go, well, for the same money, I could you know, get like a faster car. So then I start looking at the faster car for the same money. And then I'm like. I'm right back to look, I'm looking for, oh, you know what? If I if I had a daily three fifty Z, then I could just make this one my race car and like that would be great. And then my partner comes in, she's like, You're not getting another rear wheel drive sports car. Like, that's not a daily. And I'm like, Well like it can be a daily if you drive it every day. <laughs> that's my <laughs> argument. That's my argument, but it does not fly with her. Um, so it's funny i will always start with like i'm gonna find a practical daily and then i'm looking at 370 zs and shit and i'm just like i can't do it I, ca- I cannot can't do it i will find my way i will reason my way into looking for very unpractical dailies it's a curse really I just,
1: this, is, this is a body style that is like my holy grail they're really hard to find because one way that they were assembled from the factory they always rotted out at the frame
4: they all did back then
1: no, no, this was a very specific thing. If you added like bushings to the bolts that held the gearbox to the frame, it was good. But without those, it would trap water and rot the frame out like immediately. They remedied it with the next generation of vans, but they they changed the body style. And I don't like that body style at all. All my friends have been giving me hell about buying a Ford, not because they're anti Ford, but because I shit on Fords relentlessly, <laughs> which ironic. in my defense, I bought a Ford and broke it on the way home. So <laughs> yeah, I've started day You're one of fix or repair daily.
0: You're the third person I know who has consistently shit on Fords and then driven a Ford. Like my longest friend shit on Fords his entire life Got a Ford because his company that he, like, is set to inherit, like, all of a sudden made a deal with Ford as opposed to, like, Chevy his entire life. And now he drives a Ford F-150 that, like, <laughs> it's like one of the newer ones that, like, turns itself off at every red light. and It's really annoying. But uh, he's like, yeah, it's just like every other truck. I don't know why I shoot on them all the time. Like, whatever, it's fine. I'm like, yeah, it's a, I like, never how could it be any different? Like, why
1: would it... But I would also never own a new Chevy or a new Dodge well. or some shit like
4: that. Like I, I gotta say, I got that kind of money. I would own a new Mustang. I think. I think they're. I think they finally off the show. Ah!
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: what do you say? <laughs> I said it off the show.
3: I mean, yeah. If someone gave me a brand new Corvette, I would totally drive it. Like those are pretty sweet.
4: Yeah. Agreed. But-
3: I wouldn't buy
1: one. It put a
4: couple of hundred
1: miles on it for funsies, and then I would sell it so I had money to buy something I gave a fuck about. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I'm assuming here, but like I like vans. Uh, I'm assuming that a Corvette is probably hell to sleep in the back of.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Probably. I think I think I would put
3: Pontiac Fiero badges on it though, just for fun.
1: <laughs> but yeah. So so now I I own a Ford. It's not a V8. Uh, it's Dude, it's not—it's not even automatic. I shit on manuals because I, I don't like them. And here we are. I am gonna change that. though. I'm gonna put a fucking overdrive auto in it. But yeah, it's—it's it's like my dream van. And so a friend of mine, a couple about 150 miles into the state, was like feeling out if anybody would want to buy it. And I messaged him like a few minutes later, like <laughs> with a, a wall of questions. And after he answered them all, and I got a lot of answers, I, I did like and didn't like. I was like, all right, I'll see you on Saturday.
3: <laughs> nice. You should put a turbo on it.
1: I actually was reading about somebody who turbocharged a 300, but here's the thing, like the straight six 300 that Ford made, it's not the be all end all of motors by any stretch. Like it's not a powerhouse. Even if you do performance work besides like forced induction, you're still not going to even get 300 horsepower out of it. Here's what you will get out of a Ford straight six, 300, 300, 300,000 miles. That's the key. Those motors were like kind of mediocre, but
3: they were mediocre forever. Yeah. I mean, yeah, basically any
4: American straight six is going to be like that, right? Any straight six ever. Pretty much. Yeah. The 300 specifically has a reputation
1: for being like a really good workhorse motor that never dies.
4: Yeah. But so does the uh, so does that like four liter uh, straight six that the Jeeps used. Same kind of thing.
3: Yes, but that doesn't have enough leaders. Or the Chrysler Slant (laughs) 6.
1: Oh, the leaning tower of power that like everyone I know has ever had problems with. No. No, that does not have that reputation.
4: Yeah. Other straight sixes. Jay-Z motors, even BMW straight sixes are pretty reliable. There's something about that straight six, that straight six orientation is just smoother and less demanding on the motor. Uh, plus
1: the main caps, like the basing on the rods, like there's a main yeah. cap. for the barra
3: in Australia. Wish we yep. could get those here.
1: Either way, it's a crate motor with less than 2,000 miles on it. So, Fuck yes. yeah, Yeah, this, this thing was a win. Like in, in ter- weird terms of practicality, it actually is a practical decision for me because it's in really good shape. It didn't need any work until I got a hold of it. That work is already almost finished because, oh, somebody used flex pipe on a small portion of the exhaust and it rotted and on the drive home, it broke.
4: Flex pipes nice. are just shitty. Just get rid of them. Anytime you can oh. get rid of flex pipes. Well, I'm replacing it with more flex pipe. Ooh. Dude, so I I I'm not happy
1: my- about it, but I want to drive it tomorrow. God damn it.
4: <laughs> yeah, I got rid of mine, but mostly because I was scraping mine on speed bumps and I just threw them every time. So.
1: I'm hoping in fall I'll like I'll replace the portion that I'm doing right now and the other portion that's on it with a properly like welded stainless uh, exhaust system. But right now, good is good enough.
4: Yeah, I feel you. Well, uh, on that note, I think uh, that probably wraps up our car talk. Right? You guys all went. Good. I think we were good. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Sweet. All right. So nice. let's uh, take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will dive right into our Walter Ruther story. Sounds good, man. All right. Well, yeah.
1: is right, time to go cut a piece of flex pipe to length. No, no, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> just replace it with like.
0: Is it is it a trite joke to say to do the flex seal thing and just say replace it with flex seal? Is that something you guys have already? That done?
1: would probably be about as good. Okay. Flex pipe sucks. Uh, you, hey, you 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 do right. like uh, uh carpentry work and stuff like that. Like you know the uh the wiring that comes in the corrugated like housing. I forget what it's specifically called.
2: Um, MC
1: corrugated housing well like um romex like electrical wiring yeah but it's got that like uh helical stuff that you need a special tool to cut
0: are you talking about like really complicated wires like coax or ethernet or something like
1: no, no it, it's it's just power wires like yeah i see them run on like wall exteriors and stuff but it's in like a metal housing oh that coil thing that stuff i don't know how you work with that actually
0: now i know what you're talking about i did not know
3: what you meant at first sorry flex pipe is just that but bigger oh okay yeah All right, Hmm. I'm going to go microwave some food. I'll be back.
1: I'll
4: be right back.
3: All right, I'll see you guys in like five to 10. Yep,
1: sounds good. That's enough time for me to cut pipe. Mania's like being involuntarily on cocaine. All right, anybody back?
0: Was it, I think, yeah, you had to have been the one who posted um, self care is like browsing Craigslist for like (laughs) before 1990 and under $5,000. So if you had like an extra, I don't know, like five to 10 what would you do to, like, buy some kind of, like, fun car or something? Like, because I know if I asked my friends, like, the guys I've talked to who are car guys in my life, it'd be, like, get a fucking Miata. Like, get a $5,000 Miata and just, like, go balls to the wall with them. Like, that's probably what I would... uh, And I think I may, like, if I hang around with Phil enough, he'll probably convince me to buy a a fucking Miata just to tool around in.
4: Look, I would talk you out of it. Like, they're cool and they're fun. Look, everyone's going to have a different opinion. Here's mine. The thing to get into for fun... It can be an expensive hobby, but like, I think drifting is just so approachable and you can just, Mm -hmm. you can go and have a fucking blast and put almost no modification into a car. Now, granted, modification helps, but like, I drifted my 350Z bone stock for a good year or two. Then I started adding shit, but Mm -hmm. like, it was fucking phenomenal. I had so much fun and like... Like with drag racing, it it takes a lot of money to have this to go fast. And like, it's weirdly competitive. And especially like when you're trying to set up races and people get like too weird and serious about it. Nobody's just there to have fun. Drifting. Yeah. Yeah. You can go pretty much wherever. (laughs) Except for Brandon with his van. Well, wherever you go, when it comes to drifting, you can find a place around you. Um that'll have drift days for 50, 100 bucks, and like you could just go shred some fucking tires, have some fun.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: So as a hobby car, you really cannot go wrong with anything that is good for that, although a lot of those cars are now pretty expensive. A Miata can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are more difficult to do that with. I do recommend the 350 Z, and part of the reason is they are very reliable. And to me, oh that's- do you like Z cars? Well, and, and and so depending on how much you have to spend, <laughs> depending on how much you got to spend, you could even upgrade into three seventies territory. So like you can get one from like 2009, 2010, you could pick those up mm. for 10 to 15, you know what I mean? Mm. And that VQ motor is just fucking solid. It'll last mm-hmm. forever. And what I liked about my Z is that I could show up to the track, do no fucking work And go, fucking kill it. You know, it was all Mm. it was all about driving skill at that point. I just had to learn.
1: Everyone else, you you do have to be careful if you have the money to buy one of those cars because I have had it explained to me several times recently that if you have the money to buy something that you enjoy, you're a bad communist.
4: (laughs) Also true. I mean, that's yeah. We're bougie as fuck. What can I say? Like, yep. So you will have to, you'll have to fight that off. I have had people be like, oh, you own a car. And so how could you? And I'm like, shut the fuck up. Please just shut the fuck up. Yeah. Not interested. We all have lives. We yeah. all got to work for a living. Some of us make decent money, whatever. Yeah. So like if you're looking for a fun car, 350, a 370 or anything or an old, even 90s or early 2000s BMW, rear wheel drive, something like that, because it's something with a manual and rear wheel drive. And the reason I say that is because yeah, you can usually go fast. Right. So I can go fast in a straight Mm -hmm. line, sort of, but like it's slow compared to a drag car, like not even, but like, it's still fun. The thing about, I think drifting is like one, you can do it on the street. We shouldn't, but like you can do it on the street. (laughs) Right. So you can find a parking lot in town and you can go have some fucking fun with it. And that's tough to beat uh thing about like a miata i think they're kind of expensive to maintain at this point and i think the prices are a little high like i wouldn't buy a car right now for this but um yeah yeah. yeah. but like in a in a good couple years or something i am a big fan of the z cars i think they hold up really well they're very very reliable is that the car that was in that
0: meme that i just happened to post the other day that you commented on and I was like, I didn't realize this was a desirable car. And then you were like, oh, yeah, this thing is like the shit.
4: Oh, no, that was um. so that was the competitor to uh, Subaru uh, WRX STIs. That was an Evo. Oh, okay. it was, I think it was an Evo 8. Um, oh, uh, okay. it was it was a crude drawing, Brandon. So like you wouldn't know, like but like I could look at it, I was like, oh, fuck, that's an Evo. <laughs> that's what I was like that it was. It's hard to explain. It was like a trolley problem, but like, oh, this is you know, your country has like no money in public transportation or something. And I was like, Well Yeah, it was just a
0: ton of cars, it was just a ton of this one car all packed together, just a ton of traffic, and it was like, Yeah, you know, your your country has a public transportation issue. And uh and then Connor pipes in, he's like, Yeah, but if it was that car, I mean, uh
4: <laughs> I'll sit in traffic in an Evo eight with no problem. <laughs> I would just to, to criticize everyone who
1: told me I couldn't cut a piece of flex pipe on our break
4: unbelievable he did do it I thought he no way. I thought there was a real possibility you would do this and come back just to say you did
1: oh no it's it's more like for the last week sitting still for like minutes at a time is difficult so when I sat here for like 45 minutes I had to go do something I've been asked numerous times in the last week if I am currently on cocaine I was I was not I don't do cocaine Getting shit done. All right.
0: You guys want to uh, get started with the Walter Ruther story? Oh,
1: yeah. We're here for that.
0: Yeah. All right. I guess I'll uh, I'll just do an introduction, and then I'll just hand it right off to you, Connor. Just to be clear, this
1: is part uh, six, correct? I think so. Pretty sure. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it is. Part six of our three-part series on Walter Ruther. I know, right?
3: <laughs> I'm kind of hoping we can wrap it up because I'm kind of tired of Walter Ruther, honestly. (laughs) Me too. I hope that we can work together in the future. Like, I did, you know, kind of throw away the idea of doing something on Russian tanks, and yeah, maybe we'll do that in the future, or maybe something else.
0: Dude, Russian tanks would be the I mean, that would be a T-34 episode. would be fucking great, or a T-34 series. Hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, by the way, did you guys see the thing with those kids from uh, the Gen Sedong subreddit? They visited Michael Prenti,
4: I heard something about this in Instagram comments somewhere. I was really bummed to hear about his current state. So he's in like, okay, health and he's in his late
0: eighties, but he's like, yeah, he got very bad Alzheimer's and just cannot remember anything. But like, and it's also very lonely because like, he's just still a guy like anybody else. And who's going to come visit him unless they can talk to him about politics or whatever. It's like, which he cannot do. Like he just doesn't, he can't, that's really fucking depressing. He-
4: yeah, that, uh, that was a bummer to find out. I was like, oh, you know, and then someone's like, yeah, he's not in the great state. And I was like, oh, shoot, that's a bummer. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to do a uh, shot of Malort for Dr. Parenti. <laughs> I'll, I'll drink to that. Yeah, we're talking labor history, so I got to have my Malort. Yeah. I, think I was
3: accidentally muted there. But, Mike, I think, you know, that mission you're talking about, they'll give you the the Sirhan Sirhan brainwashing, and you can uh, take care of business. What's the Sirhan Sirhan brainwashing? The guy that killed um, Bobby Kennedy. There's a whole conspiracy theory behind oh. him that he was, like, brainwashed by the CIA or something. You know, see, I want to do the base version of that.
0: I want, like... And I'm, like, 80. And, like...
1: To, like, the local ice slash Amazon <laughs> facility and uh, I just go to- you don't need to slash that they'll be the same thing by then
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> great oh my god I can see the ad campaign <clears throat> already they're like oh the Amazon is burning well let's give it some ice ice now partnering with Amazon oh my god
4: oh, no. Zach <laughs> damn it <laughs> uh, fuck I quit yeah, this was a this was already a depressing topic, but man, we have really gone down the wrong direction here. Yeah, I fucked something up somewhere along the way there. Sorry. Listen, this um, horrible shit
2: just happens in my brain, so you gotta deal with it too. I'm not <laughs> suffering alone. At least hope that Elon Musk actually gets control of ICE so that it just runs
1: terribly and fails constantly. <laughs> <laughs> Robot cards or just something. Connor, <laughs> if you could remind
0: me, like, what started us off on this trail? Like, to also bring us which, back to the track. trail? Like, where did I... Uh, did I, I think we were talking
4: him? about
3: Joe Biden's dementia.
4: Oh, there you go. That's what
0: it was. Like, that is fucked up. Like, so I was just kind of saying that, like, I'm surprised that they've been able to keep it up. It's been a year of his presidency. And it seems like every time they get him on a really important kind of press junket or whatever, he is able to maintain... More than he can usually, so it just yeah. It it makes me wonder what are they giving him? Why are they giving it to the rest of us? That's the real big pharma hoax. There, that's all.
1: Oh, I can't hear Mike at all. Mike, hey Brandon, try again, hey, Mike. You talking, talking, talking. Okay, well that's loud enough that I can at least make out your words.
0: All right, if you're all right with that, then let's turn on the subtitles. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, that's pretty good. Can I go on another little tangent here? Sure. I might have brought this up before, but like when uh, Lee Carter was running for office in Virginia, um, one of the like mailers that his opponent sent out was like, it was that classic picture of like, um, uh, like Marx, Engels, uh, Lenin, Stalin, Mao. and. It, yeah, and the then heads heads Lee Marxism. Carter's face, and then Lee Carter like retweeted a picture of this.
1: <laughs> I came across some anarcho Bidenist memes, and now I'm trying to uh, inadvertently sort
4: of around. I collectivized it. Yes. There you go.
1: But I, I don't remember having ever heard that for a long time and making jokes like that on the podcast. And now I'm coming across like, anarcho-bidenism
4: and the anti-malarkey action (laughs) (laughs) yeah speaking of memes which I shouldn't take us on any more tangents but early on in our Instagram account when we had like no followers um, I did put out a meme that was like all the heads of like communist revolutionaries so it was like Marx, Engels, Lenin, Mao and then I put them like over the top of a uh, tandem drift line which I thought was endlessly funny but um. Yeah, it was a long time ago. It worked well. Um. So a tandem drift line is where like you're drifting, but like you're drifting all next to each other. And so I put that over the top. Like oh, okay. it, it was connecting it to that.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. But, I get it. yeah, that Do was that a, more uh, too
4: now that I know what a tandem drift line is. Yes, it's it's how you have some fun. It's kind of scary and cool. It's a lot scarier if it's your daily driver that gets you to work. You just, (laughs) uh, you know, don't spin.
2: God, those communists are amazing.
0: Alright, everybody. Welcome back to the Cars and Comrades podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight I am here with Brandon, he, him. Brian, he, him. Connor, he, him. And Zach, he, him. So, again, we're picking back up with our Walter Ruther discussion. And this is going to be part six of however many parts it's going to take us. We have given up on trying to determine the endpoint. It's just going to go on as long as it takes, but... Congrats
4: for yeah. anyone who made it this far. If you've seen this pop up on your feed and been like, OK, and you actually hit play. Congrats. You did it.
0: I mean, I've had a good response from the comments in the discord, <laughs> so uh, it's not like we're just wanking to ourselves here. Like somebody's enjoying it at least.
1: So. <laughs> I've talked to at least a couple of people who started listening to our show because they heard us recording with you guys. So that's pretty cool. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah! One of them, with Mike, was actually the the fellow that you put me in touch with because he is an IOTC comrade, and I've uh, been mm. talking to that dude a good bit. So, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's nice. Cool, hey, making- cool guy. I, I almost was able to link up with him when I was down in Georgia, but uh, some tragic shit happened, and I was not able to. Mm. Still,
0: though, that's good to hear. Yeah, real life connections. You guys will probably actually turn a few people into cars, unfortunately, which will uh, be like a carbon footprint negative. But uh, eh, what are you going to do? personal consumption
2: right yeah so, personal carbon footprint is a lie made up by b so <laughs> fuck it
0: <laughs> Did you say by Pete
2: Buttigieg? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah
0: yeah pb <laughs> all right cool well as i said i will hand it off to you connor and we can pick back up with the discussion um i don't know if you even need to give like a recap i think if you uh just pick back up where you left off we will probably ask enough questions as we tend to do <laughs> and then, yeah. Yeah, if there's any gaps left off but and I, of course people can go and check out the previous episodes of course uh, I know you guys have been having some recent uh, issues with your podcast feed. So, everybody just got their episodes
3: refreshed into the podcast feed. So, yeah, check it out if you haven't already. Yeah, you have no excuse. That was an adventure, uh, I'll say. Um, <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. took me like about eight hours of work to get all the archives put back on the new <laughs> hosting. And uh, yeah, they're a little out of order. So, sorry about that. Um, yeah. No, we were there.
4: assured that this would not happen, right? From our old hosting <laughs> service, it, it was would. supposed to be a smooth transition. And then the day they yep. shut down, we had some fucking problems.
3: Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. Um, we're calling calling you out, Chris Hayes from Shout Engine, uh, not the MSNBC guy, the other guy. But um, I mean, fuck that other guy too. Fuck them all. And it was kind of funny when we switched to the new hosting. The first download that we had was from the DC area, so uh, maybe the feds are watching us. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'd be honored, honestly. They're actually listening? That's great.
4: Yeah. So yes, well, yeah. We're on a list. The question is, are we on a list that they listen to the episodes, or are we on a list of, like, that's a problem? Which one is it?
3: Yeah, so if you're in the FBI and you're listening, uh, quit your job, get a real job. <laughs> <Hell> <laughs> I don't yeah. know what else. <laughs> don't work for the the
1: female right body now. inspector is not a real job, you <laughs> asshole. <laughs> uh.
3: Uh,
4: all right. Well, uh, anyway, yeah, so our feed was screwy. Sorry about that, folks. But, uh, you know, it should be back to normal-ish. So, uh, anyway, so in in previous episodes, I know it's been a couple episodes since I've done this, so I'm going to do it again real quick, um, mentioning sort of these questions that I've kind of floated around uh, while going through this study. I think there's a few that are uh, relevant today, of course, as always. So I wanted to just run through those real quick because I think it has been a few episodes now. But once again, how should we think about the dynamic between getting power within the capitalist system and building movements outside the centers of power? Is having influence with presidents and politicians actually worth anything? That's going to be uh, real relevant today. Real relevant. (laughs) How should we think about political education for union membership? Is it better to have larger unions or kind of more radical members or some mix in between?
1: We're going we're to talk about political education. Maybe we should also delve into political re-education.
4: Uh, yeah. Yes. It, something that will, in some fashion, be required at some point. Undoubtedly. Brent, who are you, me? I mean, I talked to enough conservatives, I'm like, Ugh. something's yep. going to have to be done there. It's going to be a big old mess to clean up off that wall. <laughs> so, what uh, what alternatives might exist to the kind of political engagement we saw from unions in the 20th century? A separate workers' party, refusal to engage in electoral politics entirely. What could be done in the 21st century, assuming unions regain some kind of power? And how how should we think about the very real pressure placed on unions by the global capitalist system? Uh, since capital can move abroad and workers can't, and competition is undeniably global between workers and businesses unions seem to be in an ever weakening position by default. How should we address these realities in the future? So like kind of a perfect example of this is like Japanese car makers were non-union at the time. And when they started entering into the American market, really hurt, uh, UAW workers. I mean, just really was, you know, completely damaging. And, and I didn't look into it yet, but one of those questions would be like, Maybe some international organizing efforts would have headed that problem off a lot fucking sooner. But anyway, something to think about. Uh, Then my last question here is, uh, how should we think about legality in future labor struggles? If the game is rigged by the ruling class and lawmakers, can anything be actually gained by playing by their rules? What alternatives might exist and what are the costs of abandoning past notions of legality? So anyway, I just want to list those up top because I know a lot of this stuff is going to be relevant for the labor struggles of the 21st century. And like, I'm too stupid to figure this stuff out. But like, maybe there's someone listening who is much smarter than myself, who can save us all. We're all depending. It's a on group you. Effort. So we'll be picking back up our story right at about the 1960s. So. In our last episode, we talked a lot about Walter's rise after World War II and kind of what happened in the wake of the Taft Hartley Act and the merger of AFL CIO um, and all of that stuff. And Walter pretty much at that point made a decision about where to take the labor movement and how to get politically engaged and what that political engagement was going to look like. So the 1960s is pretty much where we see. If that direction was correct, and what we've gained by following that path. And, you know, spoiler, not that much, but, you know, it's important to look at. (laughs) So, so first here, um, I've got, we're going to talk a little bit about Walter's involvement with specifically the Democratic Party, because that was like, we know that in the past, we've seen like some Democrats, not all, but some Democrats have felt beholden to labor in some way shape or form so in some of those cases it was important to have their support they were in control of National Guard or they could choose whether to enforce legal injunctions or not and that kind of stuff did play a role at some point but it wasn't because like there was engagement in electoral politics per se it was more it was a little bit different the tables were turned in such a way that the Democrats wanted something from labor and the labor didn't necessarily, they were in the stronger position. So there was some value there that will not always be the case. And we can kind of see that today a lot. So after the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act, union activity became severely limited, as we previously discussed. Uh, And so unions began trying to influence mainstream politics more than they had in the past. They wanted to use this political power to improve the lives of working people and to help preserve their own existence. The uh, natural choice at the time was to align themselves with the Democratic Party, uh, where they had received some support in the 1930s and 40s. Walter had always been politically involved and very well connected because of his organizing. There was a time when some portion of Democrats were somewhat beholden to organized labor, so pursuing greater influence in this sphere seemed like a reasonable course of action, a sentiment shared by many in the labor movement at the time. There was obviously some shortcomings with the strategy, though. The main issue seemed to be an imbalance in the terms of this unwritten agreement. Getting more involved in politics took a few different forms. Walter wanted organized labor to be able to have influence over legislation and a mainstream platform to push their agenda. This included the opportunity to speak at congressional committee hearings to make their case when they could coordinate with their democratic allies. So we've seen this, you know, you can see this today. There's some subcommittee somewhere having some kind of, you know, hearing on this or that thing. Sometimes it's meaningful. Sometimes it's not. So we can see the right does this to great effect with, like, Benghazi hearings. They use those. They just use those to bring out their fucking allies to just pontificate about shit. And they change the narrative and they push public opinion in that way. At this time, Democrats could do the same thing. And that was one of the benefits that unions got was, we'll we'll work with the Democrats. They'll bring us in front of this uh, congressional hearing. It feels very official and important. And there's cameras on us. We can now make our case to American people, because if the bosses had their way, we would never hear from union leaders ever. So there was some real utility there. Any gains they could make for working class people through electoral politics would allow unions to negotiate from a stronger position. Right. So this is kind of the idea of like, as we get workers into a better position, they can ask for more, which, you know, sometimes can make workers complacent. But sometimes if with the right kind of organizing behind it, you can still actually just negotiate from a stronger and stronger position. And that's obviously the goal. Now, in exchange for this influence and platform, the unions would organize to support democratic political campaigns. They were also helping to fund Democrats. They did this using uh, political action committees, or as we know them today, PACs. Obviously, there were some limits on campaign contributions, so the unions used PACs, just as PACs are used today for political campaigns. And endorsements from union bosses like Walter uh, were extremely valuable to Democratic politicians. Getting an endorsement from Walter could get 80% of UAW members to vote for a candidate, and that effect was multiplied for all the working people who heard the news. So it wasn't just about getting the votes for union membership. By this time, Walter is a national figure. He's a household name, which it's weird because we don't hear about him today. But at this time, I know how that works. <laughs> yeah, so in some ways, Walter was ineffective. But in other ways, there's a reason he was erased from history. And it's, mm-hmm. it was all the good stuff he did, not the bad stuff. At one point, he was also erased from the present. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So part of it was Walter was a national figure. And so people actually really watched to see where his endorsements were going to go. If you were a friend of Walter, you were going to get votes from people in even unrelated unions or people who just respected unions or came from families where they had a lot of union workers. Right. So that, you know, and UAW members would um, convince their families and friends also to vote in interest of the union. This is back when unions had real fucking power and like, that's how it, that's how they used it. So for a Democrat to get Walter's endorsement, it it was kind of a big fucking deal. So they were willing to, you know, play ball and give Walter a few things that he wanted to get that kind of an endorsement. Now, this might be a good arrangement if there wasn't a fundamental imbalance between who could deliver on their promises. You see, there's nothing to stop the union from giving money, or organizing get-out-the-vote campaigns, or giving endorsements. They have full ability to provide that. Democratic politicians, on the other hand, can't deliver so easily. They always have excuses, both genuine and artificial. There's no shortage of Republicans, or bad polls, or bad timing, or complicated processes, or delays on delays, or the rest of the party not going along. Should sound pretty familiar, or some parliamentarian, or whatever they call it now. Correct, <laughs> Donna. You're being
0: you're being too generous even with those excuses. Like they bargain before they even get to the table. Man. They just they just before they even get to the point of having to make those excuses, they just say this is unrealistic, and then they bargained it down before that. Well, and then well, the requirements rejected anyway. This is
4: a different time. So this is the time when they actually use those excuses. We're at a time where right. they don't even give us get to those excuses. They're just like, no, nah, that's mm-hmm. no, we're not even gonna fucking fuck with that. Nah, come back with less. Then we'll then we'll talk. So yeah, it, it's gotten bad. It was bad then, it's worse now. I mean, and so just
0: with the the brief kind of introduction that you've done so far, I think one of the big takeaways if, if people are going to relate to this just the dismantling of the Democratic Party over the last few decades is that union membership was a major voting block for them. That they could depend on and that they needed to make concessions for. And now because so few people are in unions, that it's not something that you can count on. And it's this vicious cycle of unions dismantling the Democratic Party, losing a base and worker working class people not getting anything
1: ever. I I do want to say because I I feel like I'm the optimist on the show here in general uh, that. 2021, I think I I saw that it was the highest increase in union membership in the U.S. in, like, fucking decades. So, keep it up,
4: America.
0: Yeah, I mean, the fucking longest-awaited pendulum swing ever.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things to keep in mind is just, you can deal with electoral politics here and there, you know, in limited ways. To get pro-union legislation might be a worthwhile thing. The problem is, What a lot of people don't fully understand is that there's just an imbalance between what people deliver, what unions can deliver, and what Democrats can deliver. Because Democrats always have these fucking excuses. So, like, there's always something stopping them. But, like, there's nothing to stop the UAW from pledging tens of thousands of dollars to a campaign. They can just do that. They write a check and it's done. It's not like there's some Republican banker who's like, I'm not going to cash that check. unless you make a law for X, Y, Z. So like there's on one side, you have people who can do what they promise very easily without any question. And then people who can not do that or choose not to and have excuses, whatever the case may be. That is a fundamental difference. And I don't think there's even some quote unquote leftists who don't get that today. And I don't think there's a lot of unions who get that today and they didn't get it then And that's kind of what led to unions not being a political force anymore. And I think I think that misunderstanding was essentially just an error in strategy. And that strategy was partially thought up by Walter. Yeah. So anyway, the um, all these fucking reasons they've got the point of that all being is there's always a reason that the Democrats did not need to deliver. Uh, The unions could always hold up their end of the bargain, but the Democrats could not. So through this process, the Democratic Party managed to completely flip the old paradigm. Instead of Democrats being beholden to labor, labor had instead become beholden to Democrats. By the time this problem presented itself, the unions had already made the investment. They tied themselves to the Democratic Party. They had convinced their members to go along with them, and it wasn't so easy to take it back. There was never any plan to withdraw their support if the Democrats didn't deliver. Maybe they were just fooled like most liberals are today. That's not too far-fetched. Or maybe they saw what had happened and couldn't change course. I don't know the answer, but we can see today that unions are now hopelessly beholden to Democrats and for literally nothing in return.
2: Yes.
1: Yeah, so pretty dark. I want to, like, sarcastically defend Democrats, and I can't even fucking think of a way to do it. (laughs)
4: yeah and so i think it's it's important to understand that it was like there was some utility to maybe you know working with within electoral politics you know at certain times that may be necessary or possible but if there's no plan to like withdraw your support or if there's no demands for like actually getting shit done you can have this effect where the unions had made the initial investment. They got all their members on board with it. How do you take that back? Oh,
1: sorry. it's actually a very good and long-standing argument for why you should participate in bourgeois elections. Uh, and it's uh, very simply to prove the inefficacy of bourgeois elections.
4: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. It, it does. It does help to radicalize people. I will say that. So you can see. How it's ineffective.
0: I was thinking earlier today that, um, inevitably, when people pressure me in 2024 to vote for Biden to prevent Trump getting reelected because he's also <laughs> inevitably going to run again, yeah, um, I'm just going to tell them I'm going to vote for the lesser of two evils, which means I'm going to vote for the Green Party because they're less evil than whatever Joe Biden did for the last four years. So, yep
1: fuck off. yep. I'm just going to point out that the sequel to Weekend at Bernie sucked too. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if that joke lands. I just I think of, every time I think of the election of Biden, I think of weekend at Bernie's because he's just obviously a walking corpse. <laughs> but you know what?
0: I will say like I didn't think they were going to be able to sustain what because I thought that like whatever drug they gave him for the debates to like really yeah I remember that keep his his it's like you can tell they're giving him some kind of stimulant because you can see him in like a in normal interviews like when they haven't given it to him and then they shock him with something like I don't know if they inject it or what but like they have something, and yeah, that's the real fucking conspiracy, like, if you're worried about what the cabal and the elites are doing, like, the fact that they have this thing that they can fix your grandpa for <laughs> you and, like, make him remember who you are, <laughs> and they're not giving it to you, that's the real 5G Bill Gates chip right there, like, you you want that chip, like, give me that chip for when I get older, like,
3: uh, yeah. yeah, how, how long <laughs> does he have till his brain just explodes, you
1: know? will <laughs> never explode, it'll just start leaking out of his ears.
4: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he made a deal with the devil or something, but, like, I don't know. He was bad in the campaign. He was a lot worse. And now, you can tell, night and day, it's by the hour. It was as
0: soon as they put him up against Bernie. Yeah, As soon as I they put him that. up against Bernie, he was, like, golden. I was like, where is this, where has this Joe Biden been? And then, and then when they put him, once they got rid of Bernie, then they gave it to him a couple more times to debate Trump, and he was coherent. He was, like, all of a sudden, he was Joe Biden from, like, 30 years ago. It's, like, just in an old body. And then, he wins, and then they've been like tapering it off. They don't give him the dose that they gave him back then for sure. Yeah. But you can tell they're still dosing him every time he gets in front of the camera for any kind of serious issue to tell us that he's doing nothing about COVID. <laughs> like he they dose him up for He's gotta good, be but...
4: coherent when he tells us he's not gonna do shit.
1: Yeah, as in <laughs> yeah. like
4: I had very low
1: expectations of him, obviously.
4: I know but I am still astounded by how far he's fallen even from those. Oh, <laughs> It's amazing. And I, I try, I really don't see too many liberals anymore. I actually, I see more conservative thought than I ever do from liberals, but when, when I catch it and they're like, they're down with Joe Biden. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? How could, how? You know, what's really funny <laughs> is how made of this is
0: going to be because we are now recording episode six. I'm just finishing up editing episode four. And episode four is when Brandon tells us, he's like, Oh, I got COVID. And he's like, everybody I know has COVID. Like, out of 12 people that I know who are at this place, 12 of them have COVID. 12 of them were vaccinated. And he's like, I don't know if this is a Delta, because that was still going on, because we recorded that in, like, fucking October or something. And so you basically were calling what happened over the next three months right then because you were saying that like yeah nobody's doing anything nobody cares nobody's approaching this as if it's a real crisis and we're hitting like record numbers every day and we're going into the winter and it's going to get worse because we recorded it like fucking fall and then you just called everything that was going to happen over the holidays and has continued to it's it's,
1: it's prescient man it's great it's and, almost like I'm using some sort of immortal science <laughs>
3: <laughs> Who knew? yeah or you've got the lathe of heaven over there you know, yeah. some of, good. some of the people that I knew that got COVID the
1: same time I did in October have COVID again.
4: Lovely. Wow. Fun stuff. Which actually, uh, you bring up a good point. Um, because this series has going so long and we've had a couple like somewhat longer breaks and stuff, we should probably mention we are currently recording it's about mid January ish. It's after the holidays. So Yeah. Yeah. Cause I forget when we recorded all of these. Yeah. We should worth mentioning. Yeah, today's the 9th, so... Yeah.
1: yeah, actually, you know what? I'll say that since this isn't going to come out for a few weeks, I'm just going to preemptively say, like, I'm glad that things aren't as bad now as they're going to be when this episode gets released.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. That's so depressing. Dude, I'll make a
0: riskier prediction. I'll say that, like, at some point before the midterm, Biden is going to forgive a portion of student debt... For Pell Grant recipients who open up a business <laughs> in a low-income area and have a father named Keith or some bullshit, <laughs> he will like he will do something enough just in time for the midterms that like neoliberals can point to it. But like, I'm just gonna go out of limb. And say yeah, that.
3: I think it's really interesting that the uh, they keep pushing back that um, like when people need to start re- uh, payments again on student loans, and right now the the deadline for it uh, resuming is uh, May first, so May Day. I don't know. That might be an interesting uh, Mm. thing to happen on that day. Mm. Yeah, we'll see.
1: You know, like what I think is interesting and and this is literally like I'm not being sarcastic here. I I don't understand how they don't understand that they're still not acting in their own best interest. It's metaphorically, it's they're they're pointing the gun at their foot and they just keep pulling the trigger and saying, I don't understand why this hurts so much. Because, I mean,
3: they're just so divorced from the working class, you know, like they're no, just I, all a bunch of PMCs, you know. Even specifically from the perspective of a, a devout capitalist,
1: how can you not understand that killing your workforce and and limiting your ability to reproduce capital is not good?
4: They have always they have always done this shit. They have always undermined themselves. But I have never figured, but like they cannot help it. They will always undermine themselves because they, they, they don't have a choice. Like they, they're just they're so focused on like short term profits. Got to get these people back to work. Got to get them back to work. They got to make money for me. I, you're like I have not been able to get off of the fact that
1: China. And granted, every time I fucking have a conversation, people are like, "Well, obviously they're lying," and I'm like, I know. "Cool. What are your metrics other than China bad? Fuck you. big cope <laughs> Yeah, you know, big if true." Uh, No, but like, what? China managed to prevent, uh, like even like a fraction of of the deaths that we've had. They they've they've saved so many people and had economic recovery. So how does how is the logical response to that not be like, oh well, maybe we should help people instead of like, no, no, they're just fucking lying. I know. (laughs)
4: Yeah. Uh,
1: Yeah, it's it's really something, and it's. I mean, Brandon, like.
0: The reason that they are not doing it, the reason they shoot themselves in the foot is because it is algorithmic at this point. Like, you're saying, Co- Connor, they really cannot help it. They have no choice but to just do whatever is best for
1: profit because that's what's controlling everything. But that that's my specific argument. They're only doing what is quote-unquote good for profit over a, a period of, like, months. If, yeah, because, because they're well, the beyond, three, like, a three-month mark.
2: This is devastating. Short-term is the only
0: thing that dominates everything. There is no short... Uh, long term Yeah. They cannot think beyond short term because that's not what capitalism is able to do at all. It's just you know whatever the shareholders demand. And that's what runs both the, the private sector and the sorry and the public sector at this point. And that's why China's going to continue to win because they're able to make like long term plans and actually, you know, capital has
1: gone full carpe diem.
4: Yeah. It's well, ridiculous. I mean so capital here's the thing. Capitalism has had some successes. Karl Marx pointed out what some of those are but they've never actually been that good at making money. Like they always got some new scheme to like fucking squeeze, the, you know, pennies out of people. But at the end of the day, you're like, you can't fucking plan ahead for anything. And it, it it's very apparent. And anyone who's had a job can see at their own workplace. Like they're doing this stupid shit that like, doesn't make sense. Like no matter where you um. work, everyone can point out like, yeah, they could make like 20% more money if they just didn't do this stupid ass thing that they choose to do, but they'll never fucking change it. And every company is like that. Every single one, there is room for massive improvement and the market never seems to punish them. It's almost like markets don't work. (laughs) Blasphemy. Yeah. But I mean, that's to me, the reason you can see it um, in every company that, you know, Every company I've ever worked for, I'm just like, this is fucking stupid. Like, how could you possibly be operating this way? Every single company. And they all do just fine. That is the nature of capitalism. They cannot help themselves. I mean, Connor, I don't know if you
0: realize the universality of what you just said, though. Like, every single person listening to this has had a job, currently has a job in a company that seems like it is running on a skeleton crew. Like, it is running on, like, just by the skin of its teeth. And you're like, how the fuck is this happening? And considered, like, functional. And it continues to go on and not only do that, but make tons of money. And, like, you will leave, and the person who comes in will be, like, enthusiastic. This is how it all works. It's yeah. crazy.
3: It's, it's fucked up. Yeah. It's crazy. Sorry, Brian. I totally interrupted you. No, you know, I was just going to say, at my workplace, there's a lot of uh, sunk cost fallacy going on as far as, yeah, like, yep. planning stuff. You know, it's like, oh, we, we bought this, you know, machine that's $100,000. It doesn't work. We better keep pouring another hundred thousand dollars into it <laughs> to make it work rather than replace it with something that actually works and is user-friendly and doesn't fuck up all the time and doesn't need to be repaired and whatnot. So yeah, fun stuff. Yeah.
4: But like even that, you can go, it's a it's literally a known logical fallacy. It's it's written out. There people have written books on this shit, <laughs> and yet they'll just keep doing it. They'll fall into the same trap every time. Hunter.
0: Connor, are you telling me that capitalism doesn't operate by what is actually optimal and what, like, <laughs> logic and science tells it should do, and what it's and it's actually dominated by the just the the whims and wills of the rich and the elites? It's like, no way. <laughs> Come on.
1: Capitalism is operating on the same principle that I use when I blow up the motor in a van that's already worth a thousand dollars.
4: Oh, I suddenly became very familiar with the mindset. <laughs> Um, okay, well, that's a great segue into uh, Walter's involvement with uh, John F. Kennedy.
3: Is is he a $1,000 fan with a blonde motor? I was going to say, please get us <laughs> back <laughs> on the rail.
4: Yes, <laughs> yes, that specifically brought us back. So through the Ruther's involvement in politics, they came into contact with the Kennedy family on a not too infrequent basis. Given their largely shared vision for helping working class people, they were on the same side of many fights and developed pretty strong personal friendships. Walter was considered as a possible running mate for John F. Kennedy in 1960, actually. But there was a small issue with that. Walter's reputation as a socialist, and possible communist according to the right, and union organizer was seen as a problem. Why wouldn't it be? He spoke too clearly on class issues. He wasn't kind to capital. He was the boss's boy from the perspective of the communists, but he was a communist from the perspective of capital. This was already known, though. Walter didn't hide his socialist class agenda. So why wasn't Walter president of the United States? And the answer to that is J. Edgar Hoover, our favorite villain. We know that Hoover...
0: I thought you were going to say it was because he was Irish and they weren't technically white
4: (laughs) (laughs) yet. That may have been, you know, some part of it, but probably not too much. Sorry, I'm
3: just uh, I'm just imagining Walter Ruther as uh, LBJ, like uh, showing his dick to journalists and like getting drunk and driving his Amphicar into a lake and all the shenanigans that he got up to back in the day.
2: Uh,
3: (laughs) Sorry, sorry, go ahead.
4: (laughs) No, J. Edgar Hoover was always interested in Walter Ruther. And it was his personal mission to always stop Walter from achieving whatever he could. Uh, and he had a special trick up his sleeve. See, J. Edgar Hoover had a doctored letter that seemed to suggest that Walter and Victor were supportive of the Soviet Union when they spent time working in the Gorky plant in the early 30s. So remember, that was part of that, like, world trip they took. And they spent a couple years working in that plant in Russia where Walter got cold. And so therefore, communism doesn't work. So during that time, they had written home on a fairly regular basis, and because the FBI was interested in all things socialist and communist, they got their hands on one of these letters. Of course, the law enforcement community has no interest in things like truth, so they doctored the letter. The original had been signed, Carry on the Fight, then signed, Vic and Wall. The doctored version was signed, Carry on the Fight, for a Soviet America signed Vickenwald. based Which, yeah, <laughs> it would have been based. <laughs> um, but of course, this was, you know, a, a problem for someone who has political ambitions. And, and kind of what we had talked about in, I think it was the last episode, where Walter pointed out to Victor who had exposed CIA bullshit in their Latin American AFL-CIO-affiliated unions. And Walter pointed out to victor that hey you're, you're you're trying to mess with a an organization that can forge any document to prove that we're liars so he was very aware of what they could do uh, and in this case the fbi had done pretty much exactly that
1: but what did that even mean back then like they were they had like unlimited access to typewriter technology i
4: mean sure
1: i mean They just took the letter that was already written and added a few words. Like that's not some like amazing forgery.
4: Oh, it's not, but it's good enough. I mean, it got the job done.
1: I think it's a combination of
0: having access to all the peak technology available at any given era because you just are the government. But then also having the legitimacy of saying like, "Oh, here's the official letter." Like whatever Walter Walter Ruth himself provides is a fake. Like we're the government. Like we know better.
4: Yeah. All they have to do is. And and by this time, like, the FBI was trusted. Law enforcement at this time was relatively trusted. I don't know why it should. I mean, at no point should it have been trusted. But it was because Americans are gullible and have been subjected to serious propaganda. And so, yeah, the FBI had a letter that maybe a lot of the people who saw this letter may not have even believed it. But their constituents might. And that's the problem with trying to engage with people who are up for election by ostensibly uncritical, uneducated people. What are you you supposed to fucking do? So that forged letter had been floated around before. It it had been sent to politicians that were involved with Walter to make sure they didn't want to get too involved. Uh, It prevented Walter from getting appointed to countless commissions and boards and various appointments, this doctored letter was very effective in limiting the levers of power that Walter actually had access to. So at that time, of course, after McCarthyism and everything, being a communist was a problem. So if the FBI had a letter that seemed to suggest that you were at any point in time a communist, that was that was it. You were done in politics. So wonderful world we live in. (laughs)
3: It's like uh there was that guy that was um oh shoot. I, I should probably know this but uh before I talk, but there was um someone that was going to be in Carter's administration, either as the vice president or the somewhere in the cabinet. And um he got you know, eliminated from the the uh running because he had either like smoked weed once or uh had been like under treatment for mental illness once. Like it it was like, you know, ten years before or whatever. And it's like, oh, this guy is not capable of leadership. We'd better get him the fuck out of here. Note to self, do not get involved with Carter administration. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're safe on that
2: one.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Any little thing was a political problem or was perceived as a political problem. And I think that's important distinction is like, I don't know, what if we had just been like, yo, yeah, I'm a communist. Fuck it, whatever, I'm a communist. Maybe if we weren't trying to apologize for our fucking beliefs all the time, we wouldn't be in such a predicament. Back to uh, serious stuff now. So it, it it's a little bit funny to think about like the fact that that letter is a big part of the reason that Walter Ruther was not the Vice President of the United States, and spoiler, if you know what happened to Mr. John F. Kennedy. This is why Walter Ruther not, was not the president. Wait, what happened? Yeah. He's he was right. happily ever after. Okay. Everyone,
1: everyone was good. Okay.
4: Yeah, I'm sure, uh, you know, in his, whatever his dying brain experienced was probably happily ever after. But <laughs> I don't know.
3: I heard he's in, uh, he's back in Dallas um, trying to stop the steal <laughs> and um, free the children.
4: No, that was his kid, apparently. Uh, For some I reason, his uh, kid. <laughs>
3: Yeah. yeah, Elvis is there. Michael Jackson is there. They're all back. Bigfoot, too, I'm sure.
4: <laughs> so it's funny to think about, but if Walter had been JFK's vice president, it's possible that it would have prevented the assassination of JFK, of course, because Walter would have been seen as a greater threat by anyone who wanted Kennedy dead. So, kind of funny to think about. Now, Kennedy uh, turned to Walter for anything he could, though, um, that wouldn't create too many waves. Um, so, for example, he asked Walter to look into uh, right-wing infiltration into military and law enforcement. Sound familiar?
2: No. Yeah, nah.
4: yeah you'll uh, you'll never guess what they found. <laughs> so, yeah, that was an issue back then. They looked into it, and yeah, still dealing with it today. No one took that.
0: They were like, "No, it's not a problem. They just are the law enforcement. It's cool." Yeah.
4: Yeah. And then so Kennedy also actually sent Walter as part of a delegation to Cuba in 1961. Um, He was there to negotiate a prisoner release after the failed Bay of Pigs invasion with Fidel Castro.
2: Uh, (laughs) Low owned.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Now, of course, right wing criticism of negotiating with an enemy nation kept them from making any real progress, though. So Um, I didn't look into it much further than that. But, yeah, he was tasked with going and negotiating with fidel castro and whatever it didn't work you know king negotiator over here who was by all accounts a good negotiator just didn't didn't work also along those notes i didn't know where to put this in my notes so i'm like just shoehorning it the fuck in right now it's a little bit pre-kennedy but fuck it whatever In 1959, at the request of the United States Department of State, Ruther met with Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev to discuss, among other things, capitalism versus communism, organized labor, and U.S.-Russia relations. Uh, The meeting happened in San Francisco at the Mark Hopkins Hotel and was front page international news. Later, when Khrushchev met with President Kennedy at the uh, Vienna Summit in 1961, he told Kennedy, we hung the likes of Ruther in Russia in 1917. <laughs> so while we Fuck. have. Yeah. So we have some wonderful things to say about Walter Ruther in some of the things he did accomplish that he was, you know, he was cringe. Oh, I have Hilarious. some critiques. Yeah. Brandon's got some critiques that we will be getting to hopefully shortly
3: I mean, I've got some critiques of Khrushchev but that's kind of off topic also
4: also fair yeah <clears throat> also fair I have yeah he deserves
1: Wait, if Khrushchev uh liked him does that mean that like Stalin or didn't like him does that mean Stalin
4: might have been down with him <laughs> I, I <don't, laughs> yeah highly doubt, I doubt that. <laughs> okay so after JFK had his head blown off Johnson quickly turned to Walter for quote unquote help and this request was answered by walter walter had real influence with a president of the united states in kennedy and he didn't want to give that up right why would he this was the whole point of getting into bourgeois politics all of the sacrifice all of the holding back it was to get into this position he was in the room with the fucking president okay this was the fucking dream for the labor movement LBJ called Walter up pretty much as soon as he had been sworn in, and he begged Walter for his support, no matter what. And Walter was happy to oblige. So he signed on the metaphorical dotted line. But he must have misread the fine print. This was not a two way street by any stretch of the imagination. Walter got to speak with LBJ often, but it was mostly just Johnson talking Walter into supporting just about everything he did the decades of experience in massive negotiations all worth nothing. It seems when he wanted to negotiate anything with the president, this is kind of partially where that, that question I raised at the top, what is it all for? You know, what is it worth to be in the room with a president of the United States? If the president's going to talk you into like supporting bullshit, you know, what was the point?
3: Yeah. And I think this is the part in, um, in, in, part one uh, where I called uh, Walter Ruther uh, a cuck or LBJ's yeah. bitch or something like that. Yeah. So.
4: Not inaccurate. Yep. <laughs> so when LBJ wanted to escalate the ongoing Vietnam War with combat troops, he asked Walter for his crucial support. As LBJ explained, and, and you can like hear recordings of this in that documentary, which we... Did link in the show notes, although I have discovered that even our current link is no longer free. So, I I think I
3: found it on archive.org. So, okay. Well, oh no, that was a different one. Never mind. I'll see if I can find a copy of it.
4: Yeah, it was on YouTube when we started this recording. uh Brothers on the line. It's a movie worth watching, but yeah, uh, not free anymore. I don't think unless we can find. It might be
3: on some streaming service for free, like maybe Canopy, like the, the library thing. I'll I have actually, to double check on that.
4: I, che- I checked yesterday. Uh, it's only uh, on Amazon Prime for yeah, a few dollars. So I was very disappointed.
1: It almost feels like there should be some sort of theory about how capital tends to co-opt anti-capitalist uh, <laughs> things.
3: <laughs> nah. Yeah. You know, I think I really want to go buy a Che Guevara t-shirt on Amazon right now. <laughs> That's based as fuck, bro.
4: <laughs> no. No, no, no. Okay. Anyway. As long as it's made in China. In in that documentary and mm. others, um, you can they they pretty much all have this like I, I, I don't know how they got it, but a recording of this fucking phone call between uh LBJ and Walter where he's like asking him to support him in the Vietnam War, which was obviously super unpopular with the left and with Working people at the time. And LBJ said, and I quote, You know, I ain't no goddamn fascist. And then he went on with blah, 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 blah. Hey, blah. pause. Yeah. I don't
1: think that the era that we're discussing was maybe uh, any sort of utopia, but can we at least reminisce about a time when the president was actively against
2: fascism? <laughs> yeah,
3: right. <laughs>
1: Jesus. Um, well, at least know. in
2: word. I mean, yeah. Yeah. like he would openly be like, I'm. Not a goddamn fascist. What his actions did were, Seriously. you know, that's another thing, but... Which, my the next <laughs> completely valid. I
1: just, I, I long for even the lip service on the matter, right?
3: <laughs> and Connor, I mean, LBJ recorded every goddamn thing, like, almost as much as Nixon. Like, there's a recording out there of him uh, ordering new pants and, like, asking the tailor, like, you know, like, let out the ass a little bit because I got fat or something like that, you know? Like, there's all kinds of bullshit okay. about him.
4: Uh, speaking of Nixon, I d- it didn't find a place in my notes, but Nixon, as early as 1960, was very wary of Walter Ruther. He was he did not like Walter and he thought Walter was a huge threat, much more than any fucking Democratic politician. And he's you know, there was some quote like, you know, oh, my God, when when it was when he was being considered for vice president you know, and had involvement with Kennedy, Uh, Nixon, even at the time in 1960, was like, you know, it would be worse than anything the Soviet Union could ever do for a president of the United States to be beholden in any way to a political boss like Walter Ruther. So, as much as we have criticisms of Walter, he did scare the shit out of the right. So, you know, he did some things right. To be fair, uh, Nixon was paranoid about everything yes
3: but (laughs) he was maybe right about this one
4: yeah so anyway that was it was politically toxic sort of to have walter um in that kind of position so like i said didn't make it into my notes but yeah even nixon did see that even at the time but anyway so he said you know i'm no goddamn fascist and of course the next line i i wrote is Perhaps that was true, but the difference was negligible when it came to the <laughs> war. Okay. So he asked for Walter's support specifically because he was so respected as a reliable progressive. If Walter supported the war effort, perhaps it was a just cause after all. Walter had been on the right side of most issues previously, from the public perspective, at least. Okay. Not from ours necessarily or the communists in the union, but from the public he was pretty reliably progressive. So why would this be any different? Walter thought this would earn him some serious capital with the president as well. Now, that's a very valuable IOU to have, right? Hey, I supported you in this fucking horrific thing you wanted to do. It's time to pay up. Now, it might be a nice arrangement and it might be valuable capital if it wasn't going to be paid in monopoly money. You see, the longer Walter remained loyal to LBJ's every whim, the more it would take to break with the president, the more he wanted to hold on to save face. It would be incredibly difficult for Walter, who thought he had done everything right and had steered the labor movement as a whole into this direction, to come to terms with the fact that he had been wrong, that he had made a mistake. How many movement leaders have been plagued by the same problem? Going along with what doesn't work just to save face. How many movement leaders, even Walter's family and closest allies, began to wonder what the hell Walter was waiting for? They knew he was trying to walk a tight road, but for fuck's sake, come on. Walter seemed to know that he was on the wrong side, too. He didn't know how to change course, though. So, like, this position was fucking toxic for him, but he had done it to earn some points with the president, which seems like a very important thing to do. If you can get a, a dedicated labor organizer like Walter to have the president's ear and to be owed something by that president. I mean, that should be worth something, right? You'd think you would think so. It uh it didn't work out. You know, Walter pretty much stayed on through most of the war. It, it wasn't until the very end that he really did start to come out against the war. He had started kind of like softly being critical of it, um, but it wasn't until right before his death, he really said, Hey, I'm going to be against this shit now. And that was when Nixon was already in the presidency. So like, he never betrayed Lyndon B. Johnson. And like, that sucks. He was LBJ's bitch the whole fucking time. And like, I don't want to understate how much Walter was involved with the LBJ administration, despite not having any official position within uh, the administration, Walter spoke with LBJ weekly, weekly. They talked all the fucking time. Walter was, to some extent, he was trying. I don't want to pretend that like Walter wasn't trying to do something, but like he wasn't effective at it. And he, I think LBJ knew this. And it seemed apparent that, like, he was perfectly willing to exploit the fact that Walter didn't really have an easy escape. Now, that's a lot of doom and gloom. Um, It wasn't all bad. Uh, LBJ did pass some halfway decent legislation on a wide range of issues, most importantly on civil rights. But, of course, that legislation came from public pressure more so than, like, Democrats. LBJ did get through some public spending programs like Medicare Medicaid and some education programs, um all as part of his Great Society initiative, and it was like his New Deal, just not quite as good because we don't talk about it today so much. So this was like LBJ's Build Back Better plan, but it actually passed. Is the is the difference there? Well, it's because he didn't have a gosh <laughs> darn Joe Mansion, <laughs> come up the works. They hadn't invented the parliamentarian yet. Well, and so it's interesting. Um, things were just different back then. It, like just genuinely things were different. It, so Johnson was trying to get uh, related legislation through to address the crippling poverty in the U S which he called the war on poverty. Most, most of us have all heard of that. Um, now this is all decent stuff um, which Walter likely had a lot of influence in, but probably would have happened with or without him. This legislation was kind of just needed for the time And this was during a time when even Democrats were expected to actually fucking pass legislation, which is just something that seems impossible today. I mean, we haven't seen we haven't seen anything like that. But uh, in the 60s, Democrats did have some expectation to pass something, even if it was lukewarm bullshit, like there was something that had to be done. So, yeah, a little bit of a different time. And uh, this is a good time to point out. Uh, how successful the US was at addressing poverty. <laughs> Sorry. Wait, uh, yeah, that's the joke. <laughs> I, I thought you were serious for a second. Like... <laughs> no, that's the joke. You got That's me, bro. the joke. So I want to compare that to like socialist countries that have had programs addressing poverty, which mm-hmm. people can be critical of past attempts to build socialism or present ones, whatever. When they address poverty, mm-hmm. I mean, there's no fucking contest. This was the war on poverty. It happened in the the mid-60s. What the fuck did it do? Nothing. Jack shit. Capitalism inherently relies on poverty. It has to create desperate people willing to work for bullshit. There's no no way around that. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did want to just kind of take that little... That little shot there at it, but like it is pretty stark how like a socialist country is like, hey, we have some poverty, we'd like to fix it. And then they like do. And then people are like, Oh, it's so shitty there. And I'm like, I mean they had a lot of success. Here's a five year plan and a ten
0: year plan. Oh, look, we achieved all of those. Actually, we beat them a little bit, and then everybody in the West is like,
4: but at what cost? <laughs> it's just like you have we have homeless people here. I mean come on it's it's just so pathetic well even like the uh even like
3: the the new deal or the the gi bill like wasn't really didn't really help black people you know like i just finished reading um uh hammer and ho and like all the Mm -hmm. am communists were like fuck the new deal fuck uh fdr you know this is not working for us like (laughs) yeah because it was just in control of local officials so much and they
1: were
2: okay. Racist well, if the New
1: Deal wasn't trying to help poor rural black people, then who was? Uh,
2: <laughs> the answer is the Communist Party. You, I, you've read the same book I have. <laughs> yeah, read Hammer and Ho. It's a good book. Sorry. Good.
4: No. So, I mean, really, I'm just kind of trying to hit home the fact that Walter made a huge investment, and he he led the whole labor movement in this direction to get involved in this, and he got in that he got to the top. You you can't get any higher than talking directly to the fucking president. And yeah. where did it get us? You know, some legislation that would have happened with or without him? You know, it, it's not it's not a stellar record here. So, the other thing that Walter comes up in a lot is in the fight for civil rights. So, this is a pretty complex issue when it comes to Walter, and Brandon's going to have some things to say about that. Oh yeah, good. I do want to say, you know, while we may have some serious critiques of him, he did do a lot. Okay, he was not like bad on this issue per se, or not too bad. I should should clarify.
1: I want to preface my whole argument with one thing, which is I can criticize him now from the perspective of having learned a lot from a lot of the things that he did. If you believe in praxis, then you know that that's the way to go about it. He did the things that he did. A lot of them were bad and didn't even play out well with, with the left in his era. But there's a certain extent to where I recognize and respect the fact that you have to make the mistakes to learn from them.
4: Yeah. And he did try. I mean, there's, There's no there's no way to say that Walter didn't care and that he didn't try. He did both very much. It just wasn't always correct. So Walter was always a strong crusader for the cause of civil rights and meaningful racial equality. This goes all the way back to his childhood, which we discussed, you know, uh, however, eight eight thousand episodes ago. Walter's support for black workers never wavered. However, his support wasn't always perfect. He didn't always see the full spectrum of thought within the civil rights movement and didn't seriously engage with criticism of his approach, but he was serious about fighting for racial equality. He marched with Martin Luther King in Selma, Birmingham, Montgomery, and Jackson, and when King and others were jailed in Birmingham, Alabama, and King authored his famous letter for, from the Birmingham jail, Reuther arranged $160,000 for the protesters' release objectively a good thing yeah yeah so he he also helped organize and finance the march on washington uh, on august 28th 1963 delivering remarks from the lincoln memorial shortly before king gave his historic i have a dream speech he served on the board of directors for the naacp which feels kind of weird to me today but <laughs> it was a different time different approach yeah, yeah. It was important to get white people in the movement at the time. Feels weird to me today. <laughs> Definitely. And, um, it,
3: another thing I learned, um, or a couple things I learned from Hammer and Ho is, um, like, Bull Connor, who was, um, I, I think he was, like, chief of police in, in Montgomery during yeah. the civil rights period. He was also back in the 30s and 40s, like, you know, fucking with communists. And... Yeah, like he w- He had the same job for 30 years or whatever. So he was he was fucking with the, the civil rights movement for 30 years. Of course. And also, <laughs> it, it's pretty funny to read the uh, criticisms of the NAACP from the Alabama Communist Party. They're like, these are a bunch of like bourgeois, like ineffective <laughs> the assholes or whatever. So <laughs> nice. Dude, um, it, it, from that
1: perspective, it's really interesting because that whole book, like the crux of it is that like, what the NAACP had like a few hundred members in Alabama at the time as to where the Communist Party had like 50,000. Yeah. Yeah, probably a reason for that. But Yeah, the reason for it is the NAACP cared about black business owners. Yeah. Mm. And the Communist Party cared a little bit about someone else. Yeah, Like they were trying to organize like sharecroppers unions and shit like that, like in the 30s. Hell yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah. So under Walter's leadership, the UAW donated seventy-five thousand dollars in nineteen fifty-four. So again, this is not entirely just the sixties. I want to be clear, it's not like he jumped on the bandwagon in the sixties. Walter was always putting resources to this, including in the like nineteen fifties. He he was not like late to the fight. So they donated seventy-five thousand in nineteen fifty-four to help underwrite the NAACP's efforts led by Thurgood Marshall before the Supreme Court in the landmark case of Brown v. Board of Education. According to King, uh, Ruther sent letters to all his local unions in 1957 requesting members to attend and provide financial support to the Prayer Pilgrimage for Freedom in Washington, D.C. The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom was held in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, August 28, 1963. The protest sought to advocate for the civil and economic rights of African Americans. Uh, Ruther helped organize the march along with other civil rights leaders. Originally, the march was planned to take place outside the Capitol building, but Ruther, however, persuaded other organizers to move the march to the Lincoln Memorial. He believed the Lincoln Memorial would be a less threatening to Congress, which is a pretty lame-ass thing to consider, of course, (laughs) and the occasion would be more appropriate underneath the gaze of Abraham Lincoln's statue. The committee, notably Rustin, who I uh, don't know who that is, but whatever, agreed to move the site on the condition that Reuther paid. So for we should it.
1: touch on that.
4: What? Yeah, let's touch on it.
1: Bayard Rustin. I don't know a ton about him, but I know a little bit specifically because there's a biopic being filmed about him here in Pittsburgh right now. Oh, really? Oh, okay, cool. And you know, I have I'm in, being uh, an IOTC now, like I have a lot of friends who are working on that show, and so he's he's actually like an interesting counterpart to Walter Ruther because he was a civil rights leader who was, at the time, a socialist and a member of, like, the Socialist Party that later became the Social Democrats, blah, blah, blah. Really, like, milk-toast fuck. Like, I have I don't know everything there is about him. I've, I've read some brief synopses. He kind of makes, like, MLK look far left. And now, mm-hmm. not to say that MLK didn't have some pretty, like, rad leftist leanings, but this dude was a Zionist... Mm. Like, which I, I don't mean, really know enough about, like the history of of Zionism to know exactly how
3: bad of a position that was in the '60s, but it wasn't great. Yeah, um, yeah I and mean, so was Stalin briefly. So I mean, we cut people a little bit of slack, but
1: yeah. Like I don't know. When I say I don't know the history well enough, like when were when was like the first Intifada?
3: Uh, in the '40s. I yeah. Think? So none of us
1: know, but like. Uh, he, he was, he was uh, a big, like, civil rights leader for, like, uh, gay rights and things like that. So, like, th- he had some good stuff. But he was, like, super anti-black nationalism. Like, r- really, like... He was kind of cringe. Really, yeah, he... I, 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 like, none of his positions resonate well with me, but, like, I think he's extra interesting because they are making the biopic about him now, and I'm wondering to what extent that's just, like, another attempt at, like, putting up on a pedestal, like, a really center like middling civil rights leader.
4: One hundred percent that
1: like and, you know, and at the same time, like a dude who's in 1963 is like advocating for equality for like people of color and like gay people and everything. Like I'm not going to write them off wholesale, but like,
4: yeah, He sure. was
1: he was not the be all end all of civil rights leaders at the time. So I find it extra curious that now they're making a movie about him.
4: Yeah, that is kind of weird.
1: Um, Yeah, I I didn't. Yeah, he does seem like a logical counterpart to to, uh, Walter Ruther, like, oh, uh, uh, a distinct anti-communist,
3: like,
4: hmm, interesting. Yeah,
2: I I have a
3: tangent. I just as we were talking about this, I was thinking, I I really want to write an alternative history novel where uh, Stalin invades uh, Alabama in the 30s to uh, bring about civil rights. That actually would have been cool. (laughs) Because that was a sort of like there was people in the Alabama Communist Party who were like, please, Stalin, invade us (laughs) based. There's like it's kind of like the uh, (laughs) the people that are saying, like, please, Xi, send send troops to America. (laughs) uh... I just thought that was funny. And I I was thinking about it. So sorry.
4: (laughs) Um, All good. So I'm almost uh, I'm almost through here. So anyway, the uh, the committee agreed to move the site on the condition that Ruther pay f- uh, for a $19,000 sound system so that everyone on the National Mall could hear the speakers and musicians. Ruther and the UAW finance bus transportation uh, for 5,000 of its rank and file members, which is not a small number, providing the largest single contingent from any organization. The UAW also paid for and brought thousands of signs for marchers to carry. So, like, when you see videos and, like, documentaries about the civil rights era, Walter was there. And, and if you look up pictures... Right next to Joe like- Biden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I forgot that he even had that whole... <laughs> yeah, buddy. <laughs> I was fucking hate you- liberals. Can-
3: was it him that claimed that he was like arrested with Nelson Mandela or something?
4: <laughs> yeah, or no, he was arrested protesting uh, Nelson Mandela's imprisonment or stuff. It's just like no, you weren't, bud. No.
1: <laughs> if anything, mm-hmm. he was protesting Nelson Mandela's release.
4: <laughs> um, you, you know, which again, tangent. For anyone who watches, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. There, there is a part. There's an episode where uh, Frank Reynolds, like. Would tell stories to people and they're just like dude you're just describing the, the plot to Rambo yeah that's Rambo like you you were confusing your life with John Rambo and that's what Joe Biden does <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah things look all, everything we see today not everything but like a good chunk of what we see today I hate to say you can thank Walter Ruther's decisions for he tried his best but ugh, <sighs> Was not the right path, man. (laughs) So when you see like old documentaries and stuff of civil rights movement and with Martin Luther King, Walter is in the background of a lot of those like famous pictures and videos. Like, if you find out, like go ahead and go on Google, look at what Walter Ruther looks like, and you'll start to see him in all these pictures and shit. Like he, as much as like his approach wasn't always the best, he was there. He was there for all of it. And you know. He, he did he did put a lot of this in, into motion and, and of course like you see the i have a dream speech and just think like five thousand of the people there are from the uaw i mean that's not like a small thing although there were a fuckload of people there but it's Still, a big yeah. deal so he did galvanize people for this movement so all this is to say that walter was heavily involved in the movement from early on and he put his money where his mouth was He helped to bring white workers into the movement and got them to understand how important solidarity was to the interests of the whole working class. Like I said earlier, not everyone was entirely satisfied with Walter's approach. Walter was often very focused on trying to move the broader public opinion on civil rights, uh, sometimes at the expense of racial inequality within his own unions. So that's going to be our cue for Brandon to kind of go into a little bit about the other side of Walter on civil rights and some of the criticism of him. So,
1: so I've basically been waiting for three months for this. Now, give me a second. Well, because my cat (laughs) decided that this is the exact time that he's going to love me the most. (laughs) Yep, Uh, I'll be right back. (laughs) (laughs) That was a nice launch. Okay. So I have a document prepared for this that I think that we're all going to enjoy pretty well. It is. Oh, actually, you know, I'm, I'm going to do a little bit of background because there's probably a lot of people who are listening to this that have not necessarily listened to our episodes on the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement. So in, in broad strokes, I can't Mike, have we talked about this in this series yet? I can't even remember. No, we have not. OK, well, be prepared to be fucking stoked on something. Yeah. The Dodge Revolutionary Union movement, for anyone not aware, and that's probably a lot of people because it was not something that's, I think, very well remembered, but it was uh, started out as a subset of the UAW, and it was when some black members of the UAW got together and formed a an overtly Marxist-Leninist sub-faction within the UAW. And this eventually, like, spread, like, there was the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement. Ford Revolutionary. Um, there's been a lot, even that I think are going to be lost to the ages until like someone gets motivated to like really go through some old writings and compile some shit. Because I have found uh, evidence of Revolutionary Union movements in healthcare throughout different unions throughout the nation. Like it, it spread, but was never a significant thing in a lot of these places but drum and some of their like the other revolutionary union movements this started out in detroit specifically had uh, a few hundred members at some points and were doing you know reading groups and like all of the typical like legitimately leftist things that were going on in the 60s and they specifically had uh, some opinions about walter reuther because they were and the UAW, his his actions and the things that he said directly impacted them. So they wrote an open letter to Walter Reuther. Now I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's like four pages long, but I'm going to read their bullet points and like the first paragraph that really like we've gotten a even in our criticisms, I feel like we've painted a largely positive picture of Walter Reuther as somebody who was like progressing labor and racial justice in a a good direction. And I don't think that what I'm about to read invalidates that, but it does give the like the other side of that from the people that were actually on the shop floor doing the work and experiencing what it was like to be in the UAW at the time as a black person. They had five bullet points listed in the opening of the letter that they wanted to as their specific goals, and that is 1. Expose the UAW's racist practices 2. Expose UAW's sweetheart union practices 3. Expose totalitarian control of the UAW by the Ruther machine 4. Present a full list of demands for the redress of grievances and 5. Unite all black workers in the struggle to dispose of you and your benchmen and to win workers' control over the union and the shops.
2: Hell yeah.
1: Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this One paragraph real quick, because I feel like it it sums up what a lot of the letter just sort of expands upon. There's no doubt that the UAW is run by a gang of white racists led by yourself. After 30 years of struggle, the UAW still has an executive board that is 92% white dominated. The skilled trades are still virtually closed to blacks. The international reps are still 95% white, and the international staff is 90% white. Black workers are still the last hired, first fired, rarely promoted, and work at the hardest, dirtiest, noisiest, most dangerous jobs in the industry. Many local union leaders openly brag of their affiliations with the Ku Klux Klan, their support for George Mm -hmm. Wallace, and their contempt for anything black. With over 30 years of movement behind, the UAW has had plenty of time to eliminate racism within its own ranks, yet has chosen not to do so. Yeah. People did not universally love Walter Ruther. I'll cite the the book Detroit, I Do Mind Dying, as, like, a really great follow-up if you're interested in this, because it's, to this date, like, the only definitive thing I can find on a lot of the Revolutionary Union movement and the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, which is what that later turned into. But yeah, like, I'm of two minds on this in a certain respect, in the same way that, like, This is going to feel like a weird comparison, but bear with me for a moment. A lot of the division in the left on opinions on China is, is it pro-capitalist or is it using capitalism to venture further towards socialism? Yeah. Because a lot of the things that China does do not inherently benefit workers and at times are to the detriment of workers. And that's not me even necessarily making a massive criticism of China because I work 60 hours a week, so I don't have the room to criticize China for making them work 60 hours a week when they're actually a government that's doing positive things for their people. And I'm just doing it to make a bunch of people rich. Yeah. But there is an extent to where I wonder if Ruther thought that he was sacrificing the, the been like the good of the individual workers to produce a larger societal shift. Like, Oh, you'll get yours later. So on and so forth. Yes. But I kind of don't give a fuck. Yeah, <laughs> because, well, he was working on gaining, like, I do, in my heart, think that he was trying to benefit people, but he prioritized getting on the national stage and advocating for these, for civil rights leaders when he was ignoring the people he was actually supposed to be accountable to. He, he was yep. out there marching with Martin Luther King Jr. while... People in his own union were still fucking afraid of getting lynched at work.
4: Yeah. So, what fucking good was he doing? Like, yeah. And so, I, I kind of want to come in here a little bit, <clears throat> and this is what I talk about when I when I when I mean when I'm talking about, you know, what is what is what should union membership even look like? I mean, why the fuck would you have people who brag about being in the KKK? working alongside black workers or or at all you know why are we not educating union membership why are we not actually having some consequences for like okay look you're gonna do this shit uh, we're not gonna protect you you know why are we protecting racists within our unions which they do today you know and I understand what Walter was doing and I I can't take away the fact that he was marching with Martin Luther King. He put his money where his mouth was. He did do a lot of the right stuff. But when it came to his own fucking union, black workers were not being promoted. They were not being treated fairly. And it's like, how much could have changed if you had shown a fucking example of like Hey, this is what it looks like when you promote black workers. Here's what it looks like when black people are treated with fucking dignity. How much further would that have gone? How much more popular would Walter be if he had put not even all of his focus within his own union, which is obviously, I understand the idea that he was going for the big press. He was trying to deal with the issues in a big way. But like, if you can't also deal with the problems right under your fucking nose, I mean, what good is it? You know, what is it worth? And so these sorts of... Okay, uh, my my cars and comrades people will, will remember
1: this story from our drum episode, but as an example of how truly bad the conditions were in some of these factories, specifically for black people, there was an instance, and I, I believe it was 71 or 72, where... A man came in. I can't remember if he had been fired or if he had just uh, uh, reached his boiling point. He came in to the shop and murdered his boss, a foreman, and was on his way to find a job setter when he was stopped. One person who he was looking for was uh, the union steward because he had made numerous complaints to the steward about racism in the shop and being targeted. And yeah. the steward had continued trying to help people. Like I'd I've, I've read a little bit about him. I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he actually seemed like he was trying to do a good job and address these grievances. But when he would go to the bosses, they basically told him that if he wanted to keep his job, he was going to need to shut the fuck up. And so he was fearful for his job and had not taken some of the grievances that this man had expressed very seriously. I believe he ended up killing two or three people. When he went to trial, uh, the lawyer that uh, the lawyers that defended him were affiliates with Drum. They weren't on the shop floor, but one of one person had gotten involved with the Revo- uh, League of Revolutionary Black Workers while he was in law school, and he helped on the defense for this man. And they were effectively able to argue that the conditions for black workers in these factories were so appalling, so bad, and so unbearable that you could not logically expect someone to be treated that way and there not be an instance like this. The man was acquitted a fucking black man who came into a factory in 1970 and killed three white men was acquitted because they were able to prove that the working conditions were that bad for black people in that shop. Holy shit. Yeah. Jesus dude. So, so yeah, tell me like, Like, yes, Walter Ruther is out there advocating and he like, I will absolutely not question a lot of the work that he did very early on in his career. But like, what good is the union leader that no longer knows what the shop for looks like?
3: You jog my memory of something uh, that happened in 2019 in Toledo, Ohio, where some uh, someone hung a noose uh, near a black person's workstation. I remember that uh, and wrote whites only on a sign. So um, this kind of shit still happens, you know, in uh, I guess it was 2018. Excuse me. So,
4: yeah. And so, you know, kind of just like, what is the point of organizing workers? If this these are the people you're organizing, like, isn't it worth something to like be able to not represent some people? And I'm sure there's some legal questions with this, and I don't understand all of them. I'm sure I will at some point because we'll be doing this podcast for a little bit, but you know, is is it worth organizing these sorts of people without actually having any expectations for them changing their fucking behavior? I mean, like, how can you have union members who who can't even treat each other with respect? I mean, like, how do you function that way? And so how do you work up the fucking nerve to be out in front of cameras, to be thinking you're the biggest, baddest fucking labor leader when your own union is, I mean, ineffectual. Rich, and true. and the other thing is, Walter Ruther ran the UAW, as this letter even says, like a fucking dictatorship. So this is like, Walter thought that he was doing the right thing, that his approach was correct, right? He led the entire labor movement into this political sphere the way that he wanted. And, you know, it's like, he does all the leadership, but, like, there wasn't dissent allowed. It was Walter's way or the highway. Now, he thought he was correct, and I think through our study, we can determine he he meant well, he had the best of intentions, but he was not correct, you know, in in, in many ways. In some ways he was correct, but in many, many ways he was not. And so, it's, go ahead, Brandon. Uh, well, real,
1: real quick uh, before I forget, because I don't know the best place to include this in in Detroit, I do mind dying. I r- remember reading, and I cannot find it again for the life of me. But the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement was at the time actively complaining about the construction of a resort. The UAW right, was funding. This. Yeah. They were funding a resort. It, I, I started reading more about it after we recorded that episode. So their, their complaint was that effectively they were spending exorbitant amounts of money on constructing this resort that was going to be open to union members. Which sounds super cool, except that it was going to be something like if everyone in the union wanted to go, it was going to take like decades for all of them to get a chance to so it very quickly became apparent that they were constructing a resort for leadership and higher-ups and people with any sort of authority. Yeah. And that resort rem- got built and remained open up until fa- fairly recently, I think it was sold. I, I read about this and forgot some of the history, because, but it was the, the Black Lake Resort. And it, like, it's actually hard to find information on the construction of it. But yeah, there were, there were specifically people who were like, hey, you're spending millions of dollars on constructing this and we still are fearing for our lives at work like and 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 so
4: building off of that maybe today is a little bit different but at the time and perhaps in the future unions had fucking money there was no shortage of fucking cash for the uaw they could funnel money into civil rights activities into political campaigns into apparently building fucking resorts so there was no shortage of money so then the question becomes, what about the strike funds? How could this money have been spent differently to get gains for the workers to actually get something more? How could this money have been used to hire, I don't know, industrial saboteurs or, you know, funding people to just be spies for the union or anything that would have been far fucking cheaper than building a goddamn resort? Imagine just. Imagine if they had, instead of building a resort, got their workers enough money to afford to go away for a while and the fucking paid time off to do it. That's so much fucking easier. (laughs) And so once upon a time, unions had money and they can do that again. And when they have money again, how should they be spending it? And I think that is something we're going to have to consider uh, going forward and it cannot look the same way it did in the UAW.
1: Me, me and my friends have been discussing that actually locally just because we don't have a union hall. Our local is, is has been so small that up until recently, like, a lot of things were not options for us. And now more and more people are asking questions about how the local money is being spent and why we don't even have a union hall, like, why why there are not really resources coming back. Because money from the union, like, I love the idea of them building a resort that all of the fucking members can go to, but that's stupid. It's, no, like, your your job as the union is to better the lives of workers, lobby the government for, for better labor law, fucking, you know, even that's still, like, pretty, pretty fucking bourgeois, but, like, training centers, union halls, places to organize, like, everything you can to give workers the tools to better themselves
4: and... They built a fucking resort. Yeah. And, and, you know, if the communists were in charge, do you think they would have built a resort? (laughs) At this point, my notes have now ended and Brandon has gone through most of his thing. But for anyone who is interested, especially your guys, listeners who aren't necessarily into cars so much, we did do a I think it was a three-part series on the Revolutionary Union movements within Detroit and the auto plants. And Mm -hmm. that in and of itself is a long complex story, a lot like this, and there's many facets to it. So, if you want to learn more, there is more to it. But there was another side of Walter. So, like, I can have some amount of praise for Walter. And I was trying, you know, of course I'm trying to present that nice side of it knowing what brandon's got kind of up his sleeve here so yeah well i i can take a a very hard line
1: like fucking tanky stance against this guy who did a lot of good for workers but I, i think that the constructive thing to do is to look at his failures and successes and as we've talked about or at least alluded to throughout this series is that the I think the conclu- the conclusion that I've come to, and you know, Mike, you and I tend to agree on a lot of things, so I'm already pretty far into just arming and you know, taking control of things, whatever. Based. Walter Ruther tried as hard as he possibly could, as hard as anyone possibly could to work within the system to change it for the better.
0: On a reformist path. Yeah.
1: On a reformist path. And What he showed us was that it's not going to work because to work within bourgeois politics, you have to make concessions to capital that you should not have to make that you're going to to that they're going to ask you to make concessions that they do expect you to make. Why any union has ever made a concession to capital is fucking beyond me, because the second you give that to them, you're never getting it back. So, you know, he he did 30 years worth of work so that everyone that I know is either working overtime or two jobs to pay the fucking bills. Where did he get us?
4: Yeah. Yeah. And so I think I do
1: think that he was a good person doing his best, but he followed the wrong path. And we only know that because people like him followed that path. And now we
3: can see reformism doesn't work.
4: Yeah. Yeah. At least yeah.
3: not in the long term. You know, it always gets eroded. I mean, any any gains that he did have in his lifetime, even if they were, they weren't even all that great in his lifetime. You know, as soon as the neoliberal turn came in the 70s, you know, all that got eroded. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I remember reading one time about like all of the policies from the New Deal and how long they lasted. And it was basically fully walked back within a few years. But it's it still heralded as like this, uh, America being on the brink of socialism. Oh, FDR was the greatest yeah. socialist leader, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, like no, fuck you. Like, they gave you just enough to shut you the fuck up and then they took that back and then more. Yeah. And that's that's the moral of this fucking story is, is that anything that they give you, they're going to take back
4: tenfold. Yeah. And I think one of the other morals of the story is Walter was fundamentally he was a good and decent person and He literally risked his life for all of this. I mean, he was under threat from capitalists, the government. He was hounded by the FBI. And it was all in, you know, he was still pursuing a pretty reformist path. He did everything. He followed all of the rules, did everything right. And like, it still wasn't enough. And, And like, he had the best of intentions. Like I don't want people to think he did not have good intentions. He absolutely had great intentions, and so he should be lauded for that. Because at the time, most people did not have similar intentions. But those intentions so you weren't can enough. Be a milk
1: toe sock dam or a fucking tanky, and to the people in power, you're a communist. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So you might as well be a tanky. At least they get shit done.
0: But then also to the people that you're serving, you could not be doing enough. Like Walter Reuther was simultaneously the hardcore Soviet Unionist, like, dedicated communist that loves Stalin, but also a fucking racist to his own Union subordinates and everything. It's like, you can be both at the same time. My takeaway from this episode has been, and it seems like you guys keep reaffirming it, whether we get on a tangent talking about the steady decline of America and America being unable to conquer the algorithm of maximizing short-term profits over human life or anything as far as, like, the future existence of the country itself, or whether we're talking about Walter Ruther and his motivations and his personal feelings, whether he's actually personally a racist or whether he's just personally trying uh, to do what he can and is just being stifled by literally people breaking into his house and trying to kill him and his family. So it's like we can sit here and hem and haw about his personal motivations because that's good content for our podcast and we should continue to do it for a few more episodes. But also, what the big takeaway from that should be that you should... Have leaders for your organizations because that obviously is effective because we can see he was able to do a lot of work in his time as a leader. But also you should have complete transparency in those organizations because if the people below Walter and Victor and everybody in this organization, if people below Ruther have been able to see why he made the decisions that he made. Just like if he'd been able to see fifty years in the future and see like concessions that he made to the people that he made them to, if he'd be able to see the table that that set for labor in the future, he obviously wouldn't have done that. Yeah. But then also at the time, the people below him probably would have seen him making those decisions and said, "No, we know that that's going to not turn out well for us." So like the collective wisdom would have, I think, probably guided him in a path that is more conducive to what we would want to see today. You know what I mean? Like all the things that seem so hindsight twenty twenty for us probably would have been just as clear to them at the time. And so that's a reason for the transparency, but still, I don't want that to sound like an anarchist thing. Like we need to have no hierarchies because oh, hold on, that hold on, like,
4: <laughs> no hierarchy is great. Chaz,
1: we, want
0: the, we want the UAW,
4: but we want the, like, transparency. We want the not the chaz. Like, so actually, uh, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta take a couple points that you said that I think are super important to harp on a little bit. And well said. And so I, I want to point out, fuck, oh I've had a little too much to drink. Damn it, I'm losing it. I'm losing it, but I'm on beer five. Okay. Well, you're, um, you know what? The Malert is what's getting me, but I know I've got a point here, so I'm just going to go ahead and plow right into it and hope I get it right. One of the things that we come across with the Walter Ruther story is that he thought he was correct. And so he ran the union with kind of an iron fist. He didn't have any transparency and he didn't have the kind of democratic input from below. That was necessary for him to run this union in an effective way. He thought he was doing it correct, but he wasn't. And and so you just fucking nailed it. Oh, hell yeah. See, Lord for the win. Let's Hold back on that. (laughs) But so like by doing this, if you don't have transparency and if you don't have the kind of input from below, you will run astray whether you mean to or not. Obviously, you don't mean to run astray. So in this case, like Walter could have averted some of this by letting popular elections happen within the UAW. And this is really important news today. This is applicable today. The UAW recently had an election for changing their setup to one member, one vote. Now, to me, that's what a vote is. So I don't know what the fuck they had before. I'm going to be real honest with you. I don't know what they had before, but they had some. I read about it
1: and it was more of a delegate system.
4: Yeah, it was a delegate system that was not even really much of a good delegates. It was like the Electoral College, but for a union, it was bullshit. And so this is the kind of system that Walter was using to maintain control, to create what the League of Revolutionary Black Workers called the Ruther machine. We we In our drum episode, we discussed instances
1: where the Ruther machine intervened and got police involved because drum were trying to organize their own representation to get like voted into like union uh, uh, positions and they shut down the union hall yeah. like to prevent these people from having meetings, from organizing. And there is a lot of suspicion and this is like buried in the annals of history that like some of those union elections were pretty dodgy in favor of Ruther-backed candidates. Yeah, it's, it's too much of an attitude of "I know what's good for you, trust me."
4: And this is where my <clears throat> I'm going to sneak in that little anarchist bit. This is why. Shut up. Yeah, I was going to
1: say that sounds like it's I'll, a really bigoted tanky hold day. Hold on, like.
4: hold on. I think when it comes to communist states, which I'm to, honestly I'm fine with. I'm not the typical. Blah 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 blah. Whatever bullshit. It's a state. Well, whatever may be necessary, I'm fine with. But transparency in government, in unions, in our movements, transparency is fucking important. And so, when you take like a Soviet Union that couldn't always be transparent, but sometimes I'm just like, I don't know. Be fucking transparent. Like, be if you are this fucking clear, the CIA can't run a psyop that you're not. If you're just like, no, no, we we told our people what we're doing we were super clear if you do that and you provide the evidence the cia has nothing against you if you're not like walter who gives a shit about yeah whatever i went to the soviet union wasn't so fucking bad call me a communist i don't give a fuck i'm gonna get gains for the working people that's hard to argue with i mean when we when it's when we i'm gonna i'm gonna do a car analogy right here this is This is what happens when I'm drinking the Malort. It's (laughs) it's like committing to a drift, right? If you commit to something and you're going to do it right and you're going to be transparent, your enemies have no recourse. If you are upfront, clear, and you have intention, what the fuck are they going to do? If you actually commit, which if you don't commit, if you're drifting and you don't commit to a corner, you're going to crash, right? The thing you have to do is like you have to hit the fucking gas when you think you're going to crash. You have to hit the gas, not the brake, because if you hit the brake, you are going to crash. It's counterintuitive. It's sometimes when you are your most scared or when you feel like you have to cover something up or you can't give up power or you can't let oh, the bottom have a say in how your union's running you have to understand that, you know what, no, the worker's know best. You have to just go with it. You have to commit to your path and fucking go with it. And when you do that, it works better. So that's my little rough car analogy.
0: I like It makes sense. I don't know how to drift, but it seems like it makes sense. The way that I've seen people do it, it seems like it, Yeah, you can fuck it up very easily if you don't hit the gas confidently
4: at the right time. If you, yeah, you can't be, so here's the thing, you can't be scared when you're drifting. Like, you have to just except like you know what I can crash and I'll be okay. And then you go for it. You have to go all out because if you hold back, that's when you will crash. And I think what the story of Walter Ruther is kind of exactly that story. If you don't go all in, if you are not committed to following the path all the way, you're going to crash. If you're trying to please too many fucking people, you're holding back, you're 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 going half-assed. Yeah, look at what's going to happen. And so I think the counterpoint,
0: though, to the extreme transparency and letting everybody know about every concession that you're making and the reason that you're making it so that even if you are making some revisionist, quote unquote, concession to whoever you're making it to, that way you can at least let the people below you know why you're doing it. And then they may or may not agree with you. I think then the problem you're running into, like if I'm like, is then you're going to get canceled by your own people. If they say, like, look, you shouldn't make this concession. Like, then what? Then. Does your organization then become completely doctrinaire like to the book and then never makes any concessions and then gets nothing done? You know what I mean? And I feel like that's kind of the paradox that we're all in, is that you, if you're trying to organize anything, you kind of have to be so perfect that it always toes the line in every situation and survives all these pitfalls. And the ones that succeed and do that and accomplish the most you hear about and all the ones that fall to the wayside,
4: you do not. And that's kind of just the... The position we're in. So I would say we can all take different positions on this, but I think if we had the answer to this, we'd have global communism right now. (laughs) You know, I think that's the problem. I think that's exactly what you're hitting. Yeah, it's not universal. Yeah, but I mean, through this story, I think there's a lot to be learned and, you know, we're not here to condemn Walter Ruther as like this awful person. We're having laughs. We're calling him cringe, whatever, but like Walter was kind of the perfect example of like he he did some things right did some things wrong he really did try his best and like we now have because of his mistakes we have something to learn from and i propose that that is a part of the reason that walter has been erased from history this is part of the reason that you no one and the left knows who walter Ruther is okay there is so much to learn from his story and the fact that, and like, I think that there is a real uh, concern that people that we may learn from his story. And, and I think that's what leads to no one knowing who he is. And so I think that this is, that's why this is an important story. And that's why we're on part six in a two part series. <laughs> I mean, well, that we're bad at getting to the point. We're very bad at getting. to the yeah, point, well, So I think, I'm saying this now, I think it's only going to be seven parts. I think we can finish it up in the next... I think... You said that in part three too. Yeah, I know. If on part three he said he thinks it's only going to be
1: seven parts, then he was... No, (laughs) no, no. He said he had one more.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. right. Well, no, I mean, with that being said, let's wrap it up there. And thank you again, Connor. I mean, yeah, I really, like, as much as, like, um... I don't know. You guys may think that I'm just like blowing smoke up your ass, like saying that I'm fine with doing as many parts as this takes. Like I really am, especially because like you have done all the hard work of the show prep that goes into this. Because for people who don't make podcasts, you guys may not realize that there are two hard parts that go into podcasting. It is the editing afterwards, and it is the show prep beforehand. And yeah. Connor has done half of that for me, so I'm more than happy to let you do the
3: other half if you let me do the second half because I'm a control freak about the second half. so <laughs> That's fine with me. Yeah, <laughs> there's, a, there's a reason why we don't put out an episode every week. You know. Yeah, we yeah. had to stop
4: doing that because it got.
3: Yeah, I'm such a glutton for punishment. I decided to do
0: two episodes a week, and then I've not held to it once in the entire like six to eight months since we
4: started the Patreon and said we're and have a Patreon. That's pretty much a of episode, Walter, so. and we're gonna try and close it up with some takeaways, which we kind of did a little bit um, in this last bit here. But uh, there's more. It's a long story. It's complicated, and uh, I don't know for anyone listening who may be in film school or something. Just saying, this should be a movie someday. So, seriously, fucking movie, Megan Hap. And,
3: and no. the what about uh, Stalin invading Alabama. I want to see that movie too.
4: Yeah.
0: Brian, I did want to say, like, that's something I really wanted to go down a rabbit hole on, but I didn't want to for time's sake. <laughs> but, like, if you ever want to uh, maybe change the medium that you want to do, because I know you said you wanted to write it as, like, a short story or possibly a longer book, but, like, if you want to make that into, like, um, we could do, like, a role playing game themed with that and then make it into, like, a multi-episode podcast series, and we could, like, talk about Stalin invading Alabama and, you know, showing people that actually uh, you get more out of an economic system if your government actually works for you. Who knew? But, uh,
3: yeah, uh, that's an idea. I don't know. That is quite I mean, an idea. <laughs> I don't know how that would work exactly, but I'm I'm on board if, if we want to do that.
0: I do. I mean, it's just something to. That... I, like when I say I'm gonna write a short story about something, that never happens. But then if yeah, I say same. I'm gonna write a podcast episode about it, it happens. Okay. And then if I can find a way to like make that like lively at the same time, that's just me. So I'm just transpogrifying my experience to you. So. so, but yeah, writing a story
4: yeah. can be a lot. But if we write a D and D campaign, I'm just saying that could work, and it does work well for podcasts in my experience. Yeah,
3: I have been enjoying the the Chapo D and D thing where they're um exactly yeah (laughs) doing the
4: weird that but but i
3: also understand why it's fun
1: for them to do so i would do it yeah (laughs) there you go i mean i don't i don't talk about it much on this show because it's not relevant to any of the stuff but i'm a tabletop gamer too so like that's right up my alley fair enough i'm not
0: even but i would for the show
3: yeah (laughs) i've never done role-playing so it'd be interesting
1: Sweet. I have a 40K army that's either very respectable or very not respectable, depending on whether you're uh, judging <laughs> me or not. Yeah, I think uh, you and Sterling will be along well. Uh, I just bought a 3D printer. So I'll print up a little like uh, uh, Stalin figurine f- for my character. Yeah.
3: yeah, we can have Hosea uh, Hudson and Bull Connor and I forget who else was involved with that whole thing, but Yeah. <laughs>
4: Well, uh, that's a very good potential idea in the future. Um, on that note, uh, I would like to plug some various things that I can happen to remember, uh, which is our Instagram, just cars and comrades podcast. Uh, and then we also have a backup, which is also very important to follow because. You know, Instagram is shitty sometimes, and I like to make fun of nah. I like to make fun of conservatives at times, and so that can get kind of iffy. Uh, sometimes my account gets real like hey I don't know if I can post or not so um, mm-hmm. our backup is Cars and Comrades Podcast 2 very simple and nothing to it um, you can also follow us say, at Twitter and Facebook which at some point I'll start updating eventually someday yeah,
3: I posted a couple things on there lately but Thank yeah God. I, I...
4: <laughs> <laughs> so much to keep up with uh so yeah we're on Instagram, Twitter, Hexbear, Reddit and uh yeah give us good reviews and stuff cuz that helps us we think. So rate, subscribe uh and yes if you are interested in a story about black revolutionary workers organizing in uh auto plants in Detroit check out our three part series on the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement because it's a fucking story. Yeah. quite a story
3: and and that movie that john produced that is on the internet um what was the name of the movie again uh finally got the news finally got the news yep yeah mm-hmm. that's worth watching yeah so that's all our plugs i think i'll just do a couple real quick plugs for my podcast
0: obviously check out the turn up this podcast if uh, i haven't worn over any of your listeners yet oh and, yeah, yeah i uh,
2: forgot you guys have a
4: podcast yeah
0: our individual <laughs> <Sorry>. yeah, <laughs> <Sorry. you
4: know. laughs>
0: This you may or may not be on, but (laughs) but um, yeah, I mean, obviously, subscribe to the turn leftist podcast to get uh other episodes sort of in the same vein as this one. But then, uh, for our individual hosts, you can check out the uh Twitter that Sterling runs that's Twitter slash turn leftist pod. You can check out Ward's Instagram pages where he posts memes, those are millennial leftist and millennial Marxist, and he's also on Twitter at Ward lolly. And then for Cosper, their Patreon is patreon.com slash co underscore. Um, I don't have the Patreon subscribers pulled up at the moment, and I haven't updated that list in a while, so I'm going to have to skip that one for now. Then for everything else, check out the Linktree. You can get our t-shirts or become a Patreon at Linktree slash TurnLeftist. And you can follow me on Instagram at TurnLeftist1917 since uh, my backup account got banned. That's right. I went from having like 30K to 16, now I'm down to 2, baby. So yeah, (laughs) I'm just going to build that back up slowly but surely. But uh, the shit posting will always continue. So just follow me on my current and my backup always. So yeah, just follow me on TurnLeftist. And for everything else, yeah, you know, like I said, check out the link tree, and that is it.
3: All right, thank you, gentlemen. That was really a lot of fun. Yeah, right? thank usual. you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, sorry, I was uh, getting bored. But I'm gonna go reinstall my exhaust now. <laughs> nice. How <laughs> With that flex plate, buddy. I might go install those shifter cables if it's not too cold in the garage.
2: Nice. Hell yeah. I'm gonna go ahead and install some, some tacos. Bye, Yeah. Bye, right, <laughs> gentlemen. See you next time. I didn't know you had a Toyota. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I fucking wish. All right, later, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs> All right. don't going to fight five with fire, bitch. we make you fight five with water, bitch. we going to fight racism, not racism, but we going to fight the
3: solidarity. We said we're not going to fight capitalism, with black capitalism, but we're going to fight the socialism.
2: Amazingly, or not so amazingly, Cuba's crime rate is one of the lowest in the entire hemispheres. Oddly enough, it seems that when people have their basic human needs met, they're less likely to commit crimes. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, they are going to see some serious
1: shit. The free market mythology, it argues that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers... Applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded pursuit of corporate interests and wealth accumulation will produce produce the the best best results results for all of us. us. (laughs) Through something called the invisible
0: hand.
2: (laughs) What are you smiling about? Dude, I almost had you.